0: How's it going, everyone? My name happy is New Year, Ballard. everybody. We're here with RJ and Brian Paul, and we're here with our special guest, Helpful Harry from Rosette Exotics, and, or sorry, Rosette Labworks and Rosotics. I apologize, Harry. And uh, we're super excited to have the show today. Sorry we were a little bit late. We had a couple technical difficulties, but uh, got that all sorted out. So very happy to be here. And, and, and Harry, thanks so much for taking the time, man. We
1: really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure joining a new group and talking to some new minds. And, um, you know, it was really fun. Um, you know, we did meet through Kylie from Indux Laboratories. Yeah. And it is. Uh, it was pretty fun being able to do that and sending him out with rosotics and um, seeing what the reaction was between the device and the uh the hash uh, we got quite a a great response from it and for, um, for those of you that don't know i i actually went down to emerald cup this year met up with
0: kylie the founder and owner of index labs and and picked m- myself up a, a reflux unit and the first dab that i hit through the unit before i grabbed one was from harry and it was some very very special um it was rosin right harry that is correct yeah but it was um, some, it was special rosin and I, I i'd love to hear a little bit about that before we dive into uh, a little bit of background on you but i'd like to hear you know a little bit about that extract because i know kylie told me a bit about it and i was blown away i, I was
2: i was i just want to jump in real quick yeah harry i gotta say you know rj and i were stuck at home damon as well you know working and, and whatever and Having Jameson send us in the group chat descriptions of the terps that he was he was getting and his experience with uh with your product and the index he was like, guys it's another level so I, I'm experimenting today I've got no torch out I've got no quartz I'm just using Jameson's index because he's uh, here on vacation but Harry please please describe it in your own words and the processes because uh, I was drooling.
1: Well, you know this this strain is a strain that's been worked on for for water hash for quite some time and it's a it is the gmo but it's back crossed with Chemdog. and i'm fortunate to work with a group of people up here in humboldt and northern mendocino that are very passionate about water hash strains um it's kind of interesting because When Bubble Hash first came out, we were all blown away, and we were so used to Middle Eastern Hash. Um, I went to Amsterdam, you know, when Bubble Man went the first year and everything, and it was really exciting, you know, to see this stuff in the coffee shops and, and so on. So it was a whole new experience for us. But then all of a sudden, BHO started really popping off, you know, in the in the late nineties and then the early two thousands, and it just built up. And people, it's wild because a lot of the same people kind of drifted towards BHO for a little while because it was more potent or looked different or whatever. We also didn't know as much about how to make the super duper high-end water hash that we know today. We made some good stuff, but not like we know now. And so You know a lot of those people then started seeing the explosions all over the emerald triangle and people getting really hurt and starting to understand more about the dangers of it at least in the extraction mode and so a lot of those same people drifted back to um solventless uh which is interesting a lot of the bho guys you know that went there for a minute went back to solventless and some of those guys are the guys that actually started messing with uh fresh frozen material you know and and so basically for me i knew that you know this is a long-winded way of saying like i i we had to have something really really exceptional to send kylie down the road with for two reasons number one we had to have something that was exceptional at all temperature ranges because that's what his machine does so if we don't have anything at low volatility, we won't get to show that off as much. And the same on the higher end, in the middle and, and every everything in between. So I wanted to bring him down the road with two finishes, which gives him the full capabilities of, of demonstrating all the various elements. And the elements on the index, for those that don't know, really reflect the temperature and timing of the hit and what you end up getting off of the material that you put in there. So I really thought about it for a while. And that's why I ended up choosing this GMO um, chem dog cross that I had available to me. We did a small extraction, which to us, you know, for this particular run, we did about 30 pounds of fresh frozen. And we, um, I have a hell of a set of bags, right? I don't just use your typical five or eight bag set to do my test washes, we use more like a dozen bags or so. And the reason is a lot now, of times... are you double
2: bagging or is that all different microns all the way through?
1: All different microns for the test wash. You know, double bagging would come, you know... I usually don't do that unless I'm doing something like full melt and things like that to really genuinely catch particular head ranges. But this particular hash was really interesting because every bag the 45 70 the 90 uh the 104 the 120 the 220 was all producing full melt so then i said okay you know am i just going to do a full spectrum of this or you know i was kind of deciding what to do so i checked them all as full melt i checked them all pressed individually at all different volatility ranges and What ended up happening was I really honed in on the 104 micron in particular because it was the cleanest of the melt. It had the least contaminants in it. But the other thing is it represented all the strains that went into this hybrid. A lot of times, a lot of people don't realize, and this doesn't happen every time, if you isolate the heads in different micron bags, a lot of times what you're doing is isolating the different strains in the hybrid and so you don't always get the full taste, the full spectrums out of certain you, microns, which is why it's interesting to put it all together.
2: but do you think, think that has to do with um, maturity of the heads based on where it is on the plant? or do you think that that's just based on the size that you're going through and, and the natural life cycle of that um, uh, of that trichrome plant?
1: There's a lot of things that play there um i i I know that certain plants hybridize and end up with all of the goodies in one trichome head but many don't and so if you have a hybrid of two different plants you're going to end up with two different types of heads even if they're both stalked capitates and they'll be different sizes a lot of times Um, a great example of this was we had a papaya that was crossed with a very gassy strain And there was only one micron that was dead on papaya. Everything else was gas. So you could really tell that this definitely had a very clear delineation of heads between strains within that one flower. It doesn't always happen that way, um, but it happens that way a lot. And that's why we really try to hunt and select based on similar heads, similar head types, similar head sizes, so that it's easier for production, you know. If you just want to get super heady about it, you can really go in a lot of different directions and separate your microns out and come out with a bunch of different products. You know, it it all, it it depends. I know a lot of people, there's so many different theories out there and it's all based on stoner science, not actual science, you know? And so that's the problem here. You know, mother nature is complicated and we don't have all the parameters tested yet. So um, anyway,
0: before we get too far into this area, because we will be revisiting a ton of points you brought up. Who is the farm that cultivated that? that uh, that,
1: that? This came off my crops, farm. Just my so you can chalk them out. Okay, beautiful. And, what, and the, what's I, I the was name gonna of your to, farm? Is it Rosette? Oh, go ahead. So my farm, just so you know, I live on a homestead and it's complicated. We'll probably get into it at some point, but the reason I moved to to Humboldt County was to live off-grid to save my life from a debilitating disease, and the farm that's here is my homestead farm that grew like topsy until I finally was as big as I could be reasonably with a water source position, etc. I really thought about this unknowingly. Trust me, unknowingly in advance, I thought about a lot of these things that are now uh, compliance issues such as bulldozing your property I never did that because I was always worried about fish and wildlife issues down the road and god damn it that's what happened and so I never yeah. bulldozed so I was able to keep my stuff where it is um, so anyway I live on a 48 parcel in Soham and the farm that that came from is my it's it's a small farm by today's standards it's 3900 square feet of mixed light. Full sun, uh, regen. That's amazing. It's all ja- grown with regen, Jadam nutrients, no store-bought nutrients.
0: And how how big a selection uh, was? How how large was your sift on that chem uh, cross, or was it a was it a cut that was given to you?
1: So the chem dog cut originally was something that I ended up uh, selfing to get seeds from. And luckily, I actually was able to get pollen from those seeds, even though typically they're, they're female dominant, I popped enough seeds to get a male. So that's actually where that source came from. And then, you know, I was using a really healthy stock of GMO that I got up here to make that cross. That GMO definitely came from the man himself, it was the original selection, that somebody that made the trip to Massachusetts, they brought it back, on a plane in a bowl of salad pretending it was you know they just stuck a bunch of cuts in the middle of the salad brought it back on the plane we stuck them you know out of about 20 cuts or so we had like three that lived and uh we grew the crap out of that for years and it was amazing nobody knew the difference because nobody heard of chem dog everybody heard of sour diesel and og yeah. so i was like yeah i need sour diesel Here you go hey i yeah. need og <laughs> That's no we never heard of it for. that dog until that whole craze was over you know yeah so. a lot to
0: unpack there but before we get into that harry i want to kind of back up because i think a lot of um guys who are super polarizing and knowledgeable in the industry like yourself you know get caught up in a lot of cannabis conversations but don't talk a lot about themselves and and i know guys like us have a lot of interest in you know your background and your story and and, and sort of how how it all started and. Where your relationship with the plant start started so if you could kind of rewind the clock and and take us back we'd love to hear a little bit more
1: about that sure yeah i mean my passion with cannabis goes really a long ways back and it started very innocently i think there's all different kinds of cannabis users out there you know there's people that started in high school and college and peer pressure or their sister or their uncle. I mean, there's so many different ways that people get turned on to cannabis. And with me, it was from a family member that I'm not going to mention, but it was at a very early age. You know, I first tried cannabis when I was about 11, 12 years old, maybe. And this family member gave me a couple of joints, and that's how I, I actually smoked. I witnessed my parents smoking cigarettes my whole life. My parents were chain smokers until I was about 16 when they quit. So smoking, it's it's crazy. You know, it does come natural to people that witness it all the time and, and breathe it second hand all the time. So for me to light up a joint as an 11, 12 year old, it, it actually was pretty easy, believe it or not. And I remember I just kind of passed out and fell asleep on the hill and back of my house because I didn't even know what I was doing. I was so young. And. Where where were you growing up, Harry? That was New York. So New York is a very different experience from where I am now in Humboldt County, obviously. And um, it, it was very illegal back then. Things are changing now. But it was very illegal back then. So, you know, to smoke cannabis back then, it was definitely all black market. And most of it was brick weed coming from Columbia or South America somewhere. Heavily seeded, moldy, brown, terrible, you know. But that's that's how I started smoking cannabis. And despite all that, I still loved it. You know, Um, the reality is ever since that one experience with my friend as a little kid, I was always sort of inquisitive about it. And really, when I was really young, even before that, I loved gardening with my mother. We grew a vegetable garden. You can actually grow really great vegetables in um, New York and New Jersey, believe it or not. I'm up, in, I'm up here in Ontario,
2: Canada. We got the same
1: same thing <clears throat> in Ontario. Yeah. But
2: you only got a short season. It's different.
1: Right. It is, but you can still, I mean, it gets really hot. It's really humid. So certain things grow really, really great. And I always loved it. And um, my mom put me in charge of watering and planting. So really, when I was a little kid, I was really into gardening um, very innocently. And so when I tried it, so this is how this leads into this. I mean, I tried it as a little kid and it was so hard to get that my first experience was somebody on the next block over, I found out was actually selling cannabis, weed, as we called it. And I bought a uh, at the time a nickel bag because these are the days of lit, lids and nickel bags and dime bags. And there was a bunch of seeds in there. And as a kid, I didn't even get an allowance at the time. My parents weren't well off or anything. So, you know, I hardly had any money. So to, to, to spend any money on weed was really non-doable. And so I decided to, to grow it, you know, as crazy as that was as a little kid in New York, you know. And so I started growing weed, you know, very early in my, you know, probably 13 years old, 12 years old I was growing weed in my room. I had commandeered um, little fluorescent lights and figured out a number of things, stole lights from like my dad's basement and set a little tiny thing up and was growing in my room. And, you know, in New York, it was, it was hard to get a high times magazine even, right? You went to the store and if you bought it, You know, people might follow you home and so on. And the only places you could buy it was like a liquor store. And a lot of the liquor stores were 21 and up at that point. Or actually, excuse me, 18 and up. That's another funny story. New York turned to 19 the day I turned 18. And then they stair-stepped it. So they went 19 to 21, if you guys remember. So I turned 18, it went to 19. I turned 19, it turned to 21. So I missed. Never got to drink legally until I was 21. (laughs) Anyway, you could only buy these types of magazines. They were pretty strict at a liquor store. They were with the pornography and stuff. So, you know, to have a high times magazine in New York in the early eighties and mid eighties, I mean, it was kind of a pain in the ass and it was sketchy. And, you know, you didn't know what people were going to think or you didn't know if they were going to call the cops on you. It was weird, you know? So we had to figure a lot of stuff out ourselves. And it was wasn't until I, you know, my kahunas grew drastically as I got older and and became a teenager. And I had a friend that moved out early, and um, by the time he was eighteen, he had his own apartment. And I had already wired up his basement and put a couple of thousand watt street lights in his basement because there were no ag lights back then, right? Uh, so you had to, if you wanted high powered sodium lights, you had to get parking lot lights. And then they started selling (laughs) these big parabolic reflectors. So we got these big parabolic reflectors and I converted my street light to the parabolic reflector and put all these fluorescent lights around it. And this was in a basement in New York. I mean, this was a big deal back then. I went to Amsterdam to get the seeds, you know, because by, like I said, by the time I was a teenager, I wasn't afraid as much to buy the high times anymore. I had heard that the seed bank was open. Opening, what? I had read about Neville. I had sent away for some seeds that what turned out the to first be cultivars you grew. Um, the first ones that I grew that were real, that I knew what they were, were the the, the original land raised Durban Poison from 1985 when the seed bank opened, and then um the Northern Lights Haze Cross, and everybody wanted the Northern Lights Haze Cross because it came with a warning. Literally right on it, it says that, you know, you may pass out, you may throw up, you may defecate, you know, like literally it came with a warning and we were like, I want that. And so the first two things that I grew out was I got the early girl, early Pearl, actually it was called. I got the um, Durban Poison, the original land race, not the Dutch Passion that everybody's familiar with now. This is the real land race. It's different. There's a bunch of CBD in it. Um, now we know. Can you and talk about that a little bit, the, the difference between those two? So, uh, you know, I believe – kick this on here. I believe that what happened was Dutch Passion got a hold of the original land race and crossed it, and that's what they sell. Because what they sell is a hybrid that's really a dense, almost a hazy smelling uh, – Type of flower whereas the original land race is a traditional land race it's this big plant the buds are big and firm but somewhat airy and the color of the plant is like the color of cash if you know what i mean it's not your typical dark green or light green it's like the color of cash and the hairs are are like a, a lavender the other difference is once we were able to test it at least the stuff that I was growing consistently was right around a one-to-one CBD to THC. And interestingly, way before testing, I was very attracted to the Durban. I put the Northern Lights down because it did tend to make me paranoid and stuff like that, especially since I was growing with salts back then. And I was very attracted to the Durban poison. And that's what I carried with me all the way until I moved out to California And I grew the crap out of that indoors. A lot of Durban poison back in the 80s, 90s, into the early How were you growing? I was going to say, was that all salt? How was your... Well, I mean, I started growing the way everybody did with bag dirt, you know, because nobody really knew about real hydroponics unless you were in a scientific laboratory, right? Or a real hydro setup. This was a... We were oblivious, so... Pretty much what we were using was like um, bag dirt, really good dirt, and they even they did have Pro Mix back then, believe it or not. Um, so we were using Pro Mix and amending it with um, cow crap, you know, because that's all any all, that's all we knew about steer manure, Pro Mix, and then um, chemical nutrients that. Um, God, what's, you know, there's a few companies that are terrible, like Job's, there's Miracle Grow, I mean, literally some of the the most horrendous, like, it's all we knew, you know, there was one for veg, there was one for flour, and that's what we did when we very, very, very first started, because unfortunately, you gotta take a snapshot here, this is the 80s into the 90s, I mean, starting in the 60s we thought we knew better right we got rid of regenerative farming and now we're doing farming because we know better npk right it's and and it's, yeah. it was stupid so i was kind of really a product of the 70s and the 80s there and then by the time i got into the 90s is when i started really making the teas and going full organic but i tried it all so, three part you know i did the general hydroponics three part um all kinds what of year did you move food. to california I moved to california in 1990 and where did you move to i moved to the bay area and the reason is that I, we haven't talked about it yet is i used to um i got into being into stagecraft at a very early age uh Hopefully. i loved rock and roll music i was a deadhead big time you know if jerry was in town or within 500 miles of me i was there period and of story and um That's the kind of person I was, you know, Jerry's the man. So that aside, um, basically, it kind of goes like this. I loved it so much. I really had to do it. And every time I saw the guys backstage and climbing into the ceilings, I'm like, I have to do that. And so right out of high school, I started asking the people on stages, backstage. I literally begged my way into a backline position hauling around band gear for a couple of local bands and that turned into regional bands and national bands now and and i've been into music too by the way i've played keyboard i played saxophone very little guitar but i know how to take guitars apart and tune them and so on so i became very handy i learned how to do lighting i learned how to do rigging and what ended up happening is I became more and more knowledgeable and more needed on some of these smaller tours that got bigger. I became a road manager. And then <clears throat> every time I came to California on tour, I'm like, this is this is me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, and it's not like I don't have some spot in my heart for New York, but I really am the type of person that belongs in the woods in Humboldt. You know, I'm very I'm too sensitive for New York City, even though I'm born and raised there, too in tune with that kind of thing. So every time I came to California, I have to move here. And ultimately, I finally decided to make the break and stop working for the touring companies that I was uh, like Columbia Records and so on out of New York City and working with those bands. You know, anywhere from a regional band all the way to Stuart Copeland from the police doing large scale shows and things like that. I decided to join local 16 out of San Francisco and I became a master electrician and a master rigger and a lighting designer. And, you know, a lot of roadies, you know, they end up uh, going to Grays in the Bay area because there's a lot of talented people. When Jerry died, all those roadies came off the road and work in local 16, for instance, all the video guys, sound engineers, lighting and, and 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 so a lot of corporate events ended up happening there a silicon valley's there b there's a lot of talent for shows there and c there's a lot of venues right so once i started doing that people realized that i have skills that nobody in the union had number one and number two i was so into it that people just you know started hiring me like crazy and so i did all the original product launches for google and Apple and Oracle and Microsoft. I did the Xbox launch. I did all the Apple launches from, you know, the MacBook to the iPhone to the iMac to the iPad. Everywhere Steve Jobs was, that was launching a product, I was literally sitting right next to him off stage, dealing with lighting and power and things of that nature. Thing goes. That is with, so cool. Uh, Oracle, you know, we launched the grid system and all the the photo ID system and all that crap. And uh, my wife and I, I met my wife through doing shows as well, Natalie. And uh, we did a lot of shows like the original Google launch. She was the lighting designer uh, project manager on the launch for Google in the Bay Area. So that's that's kind of, you know, how I ended up in California. It's a great place to do gigs. Did you
2: ever get to meet or work with uh, the dead?
1: Yes. Absolutely. I had some very privileged times with the Grateful Dead. I did not um, tour with the dead. I did some shows that would curl your hair, though. I mean, I did a private show at the BCT where, you know, I literally got to hang out with Jerry on stage with nobody else. And I'm not bragging, but to me, that was the highlight of my life. You know what I mean? I actually got to sit next to him and have a conversation with him and So it was, and smoke weed with them and Bobby. Um, I did a lot of great special shows, Uh, Warfield shows, um, uh, Oakland Arena, not Oakland Arena, Oakland uh, Oakland Coliseum, Oakland Arena, Oakland Auditorium, Kaiser, right? They call it Kaiser now. Um, A lot of the smaller, more private shows are the shows that I worked. That's that's absolutely unreal. Did you get into the glass? Something- so dude, I used to get off of work because I worked in the Bay Area. Okay. So I'd be working in San Francisco doing an Apple show, let's say at Moscone. I get off at 10 o'clock at night. I jump in my car, go across town, pull up right next to the Warfield stage door. Uh, Tom Hazlett, the steward, would open the door and I'd walk in and I'd get to hang out right on the side of the stage prime time watch jerry garcia band you know on my way home from work that was like a normal deal for me you know it was so special that um that's why for me to go to any grateful dead type show right now is really hard because i miss jerry and nothing is the same i'm sorry (laughs) no it's not it's not the
2: original i was gonna say something that rj always likes to touch on is that's kind of where you know the glass scene really started as well with uh, Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia. What what insert are you using? I'm, I've been liking these glass ones.
1: What about you? I have a lot of different favorites. So this one that I'm actually using is a glow stick, but if you notice it's extra long, he made an extra long one. So it's like a lot, I don't know if you've heard of these, but he's got what they call lightning rods. This is like a lightning rod inside of a glass piece. So my favorite is the extra long skinny, the skinniest, but longest lightning um, glow sticks, the the torpedo. You've got one, Brian. Torpedo, (laughs) And then then the the lightning rod. Those are my favorites, but I use all the different um, glow sticks. I don't know if you can see, but. I have a whole pile of them. I highly recommend these fake matchboxes. <laughs> I carry them in my pocket so I don't lose them.
0: That's good to know. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pick up a few of those. Yeah, so James, I got
2: this little box.
0: Yeah, I've got a little tackle box, but I think I can. And do then that
1: you thing. need a bunch of these. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I need. I a do a lot of dabs, those. guys. I d- I so probably we- do 50 dabs in a day, so.
2: You're 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 with family yeah. then.
1: You're with company. No, good company. The <laughs> that's the we'll awesome.
3: I'll let you load so up. So, were you?
0: When did you? Uh, were you cultivating at this point when you were when you were working on when you were touring and, and doing set yeah. work? And, 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 when and when did, did the transition?
2: And when did the idea I of had, uh,
1: of being a homesteader happen? Well. I mean, when I was a rock and roll roadie on the road itself, yes, I had people watering my stuff when I went away, just like everybody else. I tried to automate it as good as possible. And I was, so I built armoires, right? That was my thing. Before there was grow tents, I would take big, beautiful armoires and gut them and build it out and make negative air pressure and, and just do it up, you know, That's and cool. you know, you got to remember the time. And where I was, right? You couldn't just blow up a fucking house. So uh, it was a big deal back then. So I had armoires and people would come in and they open it up and they'd sneak in and they'd add, and it was mostly hydroponics. So they'd top off my reservoirs and make sure the lights were coming on or, you know, whatever. I actually had an instance where I had to do a harvest and go right on the road. And I was a, a real roadie back then driving in a, uh, driving the band gear truck okay, uh, with uh, band gear in the back, and we had a, a sleeper cab. Oh, beautiful. Oh, wow. Ah, class. <laughs> and so Yeah, that's awesome. I actually brought the weed and hung it in the sleeper cab. <laughs> this was crazy, because we were in a, in a DOT type of truck, but it was a private vehicle, so theoretically, we weren't in need to go through the rest of uh, the way stations, but they don't know that. So you got to kind of cruise through. So here I got pl- uh, two plants, nothing big, but they stunk to high hell. Hanging in the sleeper cab. We made it all the way down to Florida because our first stop was in Florida and we're coming from New England. This is the life of a roadie, ladies and gentlemen. Band <laughs> gear has to get there somehow, right? <coughs> so we drive. And we had this truck set up We had two 55 gallon uh, tanks of diesel running side to side. So they drew at the same time that was custom on this baby. And then the sleeper cab had a hole so you could go through the driver's cab and into the sleeper cab, which was awesome. And behind the driver's seat was another little position. And then there was a seat next to that. And so while we were driving 65 miles an hour, the truck was governed. So you floor it, and you go 65, can't go any faster. The guy would get behind you, and when, when it was time to switch, guy would jump over, guy would jump in the driver's seat, keep going. Yes, while we were driving on the highway. And so we could make it from New York all the way down to almost the Florida line on that 110 gallons of fuel. We can't do runs. Totally. Oh, and and we had it set. You don't even want to know how we had to set up the tea in the back. But uh, anyway, (laughs) we made it to Florida, and we have the plants in the back. And we come into Florida, and the guys wave us into the DOT. (laughs) I said, oh, my God, in Jacksonville. And we say, holy shit, we're done. You know, I mean, not only do we have weed, but we're in a commercial vehicle. I mean, this is bad. There's nothing good about this. See, from a technicality standpoint, you're allowed to drive that type of vehicle. You don't need a CDL. It's a private vehicle. We're not for hire. But you have to explain all this crap, right? So the first thing they think is this is a is a is a truck for hire and I'm going to nail these guys. So we pull in, it definitely stunk a weed. They come in, they're like, "Can we have a dog go in your cabin?" I said, "Oh my god." They actually ran a dog through the cabin. And it didn't go in the back, which is unbelievable to me, okay? And then they do this, I don't know, 20-point or 50-point inspection on the truck or something like that. And the whole time, the weed's in the back, and we're just sweating bullets. We just drove all the way down there. And, yeah, we smoked, and we did everything known to man on the way down there to keep us going. And, and the guy does an inspection. He's checking the ball joints and all kinds of shit on the whole truck. And there was, oh, there was one thing. We didn't have a, um, you know, when you drive through states, you're supposed to get a fuel tag, okay? And you're supposed to pay like your highway tax for, for fuel as you drive through. Truckers pay these taxes on all the states that they drive through. At least it used to be that way. Well, again, if you're a private vehicle, you don't really have to do this. They assumed we were commercial, guilty until, you know, proven innocent kind of shit. And so they come up. And they take this thing, I'd never seen it before, and they clamp it across your windshield and it blocks your vision so you can't leave. And the guy goes in the back and he starts checking us out a million different ways, you know. And this is before cell phones, so I couldn't even call our production manager. I had to wait until they got to the show and tell them what was going on. It it was crazy, but the long and short of it is we had to pay like a $100 fee for some technicality they took the clamp off we drove away they never found the weed you know so i've been out of my mind with weed for a long time i mean i love it yeah it almost is
3: that's amazing
1: i mean people have been through crazier i mean believe me and and uh the emerald triangle has been unbelievable okay i mean that was growing up when i was a kid but the emerald triangle has been an education. I grew up in new york that was an education but this has been an education too the war on drugs up here is for real and when they talk about that they're talking about humble county by the way like yeah they fly sorties and a couple other places but let me tell you 90 percent of their effort was right here and not just right here but literally right here i didn't even realize the property that i was on like this subdivision was flown so hard in the late 70s early 80s when camp first started they, they made base camp out of here. Some of the biggest grows at the time, nobody had ever seen anything like it. 50, 60,000, you know, six to 10 foot plants and so on. Um, by today's standard, eh. but you know, back then it was a big deal. It was a big deal. So, you know, it's, it's so been a hell of a, a, hell of a cannabis adventure for me, guys. Who are, so when, when did, who when are, did the homesteading start? Go ahead the homesteading started out of a struggle to save my life you know and that's some of the most serious cannabis was an evolution for me you know I started as a kid and I always loved it and I did drink alcohol I drank plenty and I did other kinds of drugs too but it was always about cannabis for me there was always something very seriously attracting me to cannabis and Moving to Humboldt County was more than just, I'm going to grow weed. It was, I was not part of the green rush or anything like that. My wife and I are, are both very sensitive kind of people and the whole world, you know, the dot bomb just happened and we had a small retirement portfolio that we were paying into from work. And it, it just disappeared. And that's just one example. So we really got disenchanted with the whole world. We hated Wall Street and the whole concept of capitalism. I mean, we're pretty out there when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I'm not a conspiracy kind of guy. I just I'm the kind of guy that believes that everybody should live and let live and live off grid and decentralize everything and kind of the way we used to be in the pioneer days. So
2: I was going to say a good thing of that's fine did that a few years ago and now it's very attractive to me. And it seems like that's becoming more popular. It's almost like regenerative growing. It became unpopular. COVID,
1: COVID knocked the sense into people. It's like, what the fuck are we doing? And I'm serious. It's like, why am I running on this treadmill? What am I doing? Like, why am I not doing something for me? You know, as it is, life is so fragile and we could go at any time. We just get caught in this wheel. You could blame a bunch of different people there's all kinds of conspiracies you could get wrapped up in but it is the truth it's very easy for humans to get distracted and i'm i'm so bad at that I'll, i'll get distracted for years and then i'm like whoa i better do something else for a minute here um anyway what attracted me to homesteading is i was dying and i wanted a shot at trying to cure myself and it was the hardest thing in my life was Going to multiple doctors and having them tell me that I had to not do what I loved, which was stagecraft, I had to quit. And I can't do anything normal. You know, that's part of my problem. Um, I worked a 100-hour week every week, 52 weeks a year. Every gig that came my way, bring it on. You know, that's the way I was, and I loved it. I really loved it. Um, There were months where I would do you know, multiple load ins in a day, then go do a show and then a load out and then go to bed, wake up and do it all over again, every, every, every day. And I almost killed myself. You know, it's crazy. Like being a workaholic, you can kill yourself. And I gave myself, I advanced my disease probably 20, 30 years. I pushed my, um, my disease forward, uh, so much that it's scary you know, um, if I had worked normal hours, if I had eaten a normal diet, I ate a roadies diet. I ate like crap. I eat amazing. Now I eat freaking RB's and McDonald's every meal, every day. When I was a roadie, I destroyed my guts. I destroyed my flora and I almost killed myself. And so I had a choice, you know, am I going to live or am I going to die? And I had a wife that was pregnant with my first child. So I decided to try to fight it and, It was brutal you know it was a really brutal fight for a long time up here uh very lonely my wife wasn't here for a lot of it because she was pregnant and had to get prenatal care so she was down in the bay area and i was up here fighting dying uh rolling on the floor screaming in pain bleeding bathroom episodes from hell you know for months on end and then you know, trying to figure out how to save my life because the, the I did do normal Western medicine. You know, I tried all the steroids, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories. Um, I did all the pill cam scopes, weekly blood tests, uh, nuclear tests, everything you could do. And they were out of options and they knew it. <clears throat> and so I got to work with a lot of doctors that didn't want to be public about any of it. They refused. And they really gave me a lot of, of grief about it. But they also watched me save my life with it. So they left me alone about it because they were about to classify me as a combative patient. Which if you know about that, if that's on your permanent record, you're fucked. And basically all that happened was they caught me using their diagnostics. And treating myself with other means. Because what they were treating me with was killing me. And I tried what they did forgiven me for years exclusively it's not like i didn't give it a shot i wholeheartedly did hundreds of dollars worth of pills um um uh, enemas you know i mean dude like whatever i i was just wanting to live and it was horrendous it was torture you know it's a uh when people say they got ibd or they have colitis or uh crohn's disease let me tell you man I knew people that had that before I had it and there is nothing more insane than a flare up of that. So anyway, um, I really needed to just fight it out and either live or die and being out here was kind of where I wanted to be. When I I first came to this property many, many years ago, something happened like I felt some type of presence, some spirituality, as crazy as that sounds, coming from a guy like me but something really hit me being in this Valley, you know, whether it's the Indian presence, this is a, uh, this is an area that a lot of Indians were slaughtered. You know, there were very horrific events out here. So something just hit me and and I just, I knew that I I was very attracted to this property. It's a whole other story. Very interesting as a part of the licensed property, you get to do an archeological study. So you learn a lot about your property. Anyway, I'm kind of babbling on here. No, that's very, <laughs> but, that's very cool. And, no, and I I
2: actually really respect that because I don't <clears throat> know many people that would actually <laughs> – David that, uh, I don't know many people that would actually, you know, go to the depths of that. And I think we need to pay respects to, to some of, you know, the Native people. And, and really, in, in Canada, we're finally acknowledging some of that, some of the atro- atrocities. Um, so, yeah, I, I really respect –
1: as a part of our licensure, guys, in Humboldt, okay? Oh. I don't know about the rest of California, but this is such a sacred area for Indians, Native Americans. This is supposedly was the most populous area with Native Americans out of anywhere in North America at one point. They had their own government and cities. They had their own slaves and everything. But this area is very rich in resources, and all along the rivers is where they lived from, you know, what the historians have told me. So it was fascinating and a very cool part of the process. Um, Luckily, there there were no slaughters on my property, but the property above me was kind of like the last stand. Fort Seward, you can look it up um, in your history books, was just below me and uh, for those that have seen murder mountain that's really close by Um, you know i'm really really close to murder mountain that's in the fort seward blocksburg alder point area and from a native american standpoint it's very historical uh the military came in here and basically built a fort fort built fort seward killed off a bunch of native americans and pushed them towards me The other side, there's Route 36. That was just a cavalry-only road for a long time. And they pushed all the Native Americans towards me as well. And so where I am right now, actually, the, the hill above me, my neighbor, on her parcel was where the last stand was, where the Cavalries came together and killed off the last of the Indians in this area. And so I, you know, being very sensitive, I literally feel like I can feel that, you know and can be on the positive side of that. And I'm trying to nurture this property and do the best that I can to hold the ground here. So that I got to tell you the truth. I don't think that this is ever going to become a populous area that I am so deep right now. If I was on my phone, I'd bring you out with me. So you could see, but I'm in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. So deep, you know, I don't think this could ever become a populated area, but we're going to try to make sure it never does because it's pretty special. Yeah, that's my backyard.
2: Okay, so someone in the comments, I just have to say, was like, sounds like someone took the Murder Mountain documentary too seriously. And then I was like, wait a minute. You were literally just talking about that. That's kind of fucking crazy. Like, that's too I guess, anyways, I'll, I'll let someone else talk.
0: Harry, I wanted to, I well, wanted to ask
1: murder mountain is pretty the the thing about murder mountain is it's pretty close to accurate yes there's glamour there's glamorizing the other thing that's not accurate is they make you believe it's all coming from murder mountain which is rancho sequoia Mm -hmm. but it's from all over humboldt so it's a little bit skewed but it's pretty close to accurate (laughs) those people are pretty close to real that's that's like my backyard i'm i literally live there's older point in blocksburg is right next to it so that's that's where i am so harry moving from cultivating with
0: street lights indoors primarily in basements to full sun full term outdoor you know is quite a transition um was there were there people in the area that took you under your wing or took you under their wing and, and, and mentored you through that process or, or were you stumbling through it a little bit on your own can you talk a little bit about that
1: definitely um the thing that happened in humboldt in in the 80s is camp i don't know if you all know or are familiar with that but campaign against marijuana plantation and so they would come in and they'd wreck the party you know they would come in and cut everything down and Early on, it was just about eradication and not arresting, but the long and short of it is up until that point, people went sick outside because they weren't flying, and we're in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, the nearest police station, it takes them two hours to get here, so they just didn't, and, you know, on the other hand, if you needed help, they weren't going to come either, but that being said, um, then camp happened you know, as soon as they realized, you know, what was going on and, and they started flying and they had money and federal funding and the, the National Guard came in and things got ugly, they drove everybody inside. And that's when indoor really happened. You know, it's because of camp. You can definitely almost pin it to camp. I think it might have happened eventually, but it got accelerated dramatically because of camp. Um, everybody that was growing outside, And there's kind of a legend a little bit of lore in this area at the entrance to my subdivision when i first moved here there was an old couple eventually you know they got into their upper 80s and and the old man passed away and it's kind of sad he's literally one of the original back to the lander people up here and one of the people that got forced inside and the first person that anybody knows of to get busted with an indoor and it was a big red barn right at the entrance to my subdivision that we all see as we drive in. So it's kind of the monument to the original indoor that any of us know about <clears throat> long, long, long ago in the early 80s with street lights. Um, so, you know, I, to answer your question, I definitely had a lot of great people that I learned from uh, how to grow indoor and outdoor. I learned um from some amazing people that knew how to grow in new york city believe it or not that had moved there from los angeles and northern california and then when i moved to california um stagehands i can tell you universally uh they they smoke weed like like they breathe air and so there's a lot of growers and they're technically minded and so they're really into it so i got a lot of tips there Again, I kept building out closets and armoires, and I finally graduated to renting out an apartment above me just to do that. That was like, you know, a big deal back then for me because I did not want to get nailed. Let's put it that way. And we were right in the middle of town, too, at the time. Um, In Humboldt County, I definitely can um, thank a lot of amazing indoor cultivators that, They didn't actually figure it out originally as much as they were smart enough to know who to hire. And so when prices were really high and they had a bunch of money, what they did is they hired these guys out of colleges, uh, ad colleges like UC Davis to help them formulate um, cultivation plans and dirt and nutrient programs and so on. And so a couple of these guys really had it dialed in. It was sort of a hybrid between organic and um, synthetic nutrients. And we were crushing it, you know. These guys spent a huge amount of money dialing it in. And these were bunkers that were buried in the woods in places like Salmon Creek, running off of generators that were buried 20 feet underground, you know, all with uh, uh, heat you know heat uh heat imaging distraction above it above ground and all that you know crazy shit they were doing so um, talk, harry talk to me about a little bit about your first extraction
0: experience was it uh was it a solventless or were you was it a, a butane tank experience or how did you well, get exposed
1: well i i fell in love with hash immediately because the, most of the weed that I got originally when I grew up sucked, you know, plain and simple. Even the good stuff sucked, you know, not even by today's standards, just period. It got you stoned, but it was terrible. Like you don't even know how it got into that state to get to you. Um, so, uh, you know, right away, as soon as I started reading and I'm, a, I'm an avid reader and I'm a DIY kind of guy. Um, you know, build your own clean room kind of guy. And so right off the bat in the early 80s, I got into making hash, making dry sift. That's all we knew about. There was no water hash that anybody knew of that I knew of. If they were doing it, it was unknown to me for sure. So, you know, 1982, three, four, five, six, like I started messing around with rubbing. Like I, did, I literally didn't know what I was doing and I was reading magazine uh, like High Times and different books that I would take out of the library about hash and very vague, just seeing pictures, you know, that were very vague. They didn't have shit back then. And so we took leaves and plants and buds and whatever we got, we rubbed it on various silk screens of various microns and various thread counts to try to figure out what we would get anywhere from white to brown to green and everything in between and we started to dial in our own little method there and then we finally saw some articles that actually talked about the warming process and actually you know the pressing process and getting it into more of a Lebanese or a Moroccan form so we started doing that um there was a friend of mine that was much older than me the one thing I'll tell you is Growing up, I always hung out with this group of friends that was always about five to eight years older than me. So that meant a lot in in terms of weed. So a couple of guys went to Indonesia and they got seeds. They brought back hash. They brought back knowledge. So we learned about a few different things. And one of the things was we learned about making hash oil out of hash with grain alcohol and hash, you know, basically we would dilute it and then filter it and then um, evaporate it off in a pan. And that was very crude oil, but by, t- but by the standards back then compared to the weed that we had, it was pretty exciting, you know, cause you could actually get high off of it. <laughs> so, you know, I started out of necessity I was always wanting to get more stone than you could off of the crappy weed that we had. Um, but by the time I was a teenager, and thanks to the Grateful Dead, I actually made connections to get what they called Cush. And that's all it was called was Cush, you know, back then, at least to me. Um, certainly people had the kind the kind bud and things like that. But in terms of names, all we knew was it was Humboldt Kush. And so we actually started to get access to that. And um, we did make some hash out of that. A lot of that now I know was basically hash plant because it made such amazing hash. And I can just tell by the structure and the smell of it and knowing where it came from now. One thing that is kind of trippy and just to prove how small the cannabis universe is, when I was a kid and a teenager, you know, there was folklore about Humboldt County in New York. And this guy told me of this group of six guys that went to Afghanistan. They by way of Amsterdam, they went to Amsterdam and then they drove and they went all the way to Afghanistan and they ended up getting seeds and hash and they brought it back to amsterdam and they made hash oil out of it and they put it into wine bottles and back then they didn't check you and there was you know not duty-free situation so they threw the few wine bottles in their bag flew home with the seeds and the hash oil and the wine bottles and um those were basically the original genetics that the afghani seeds that you see floating around Humboldt that people used as the base genetics, you know, so we heard that story in New York. And then you fast forward, I'm living in Humboldt County. And when people realized that I was a master electrician, they realized that that didn't just mean that I could hook up lighting on a stage that I could actually wire up a grow. So as soon as that word got out, they started wanting me to wire up all these clandestine grows. So I end up working for this guy. And um, it's just amazing how this shit happens. It blew my mind, guys. Believe me. So Morgan, so like how, your,
3: how your story intersects with so much history, cannabis history, is incredible. It's and, cool. like, cannabis talk music, about right place, wow. right time, and like
1: everything. Like, so check I'm this out. Mindful. You want to hear this? So I'm a teenager hearing this story about these guys in the late '60s, early '70s, right, getting these seeds and doing this, and they're the ones that started the whole real sense amelia craze in the early 70s and humble so now i'm working for this guy roberto and i wire up his indoor grow and he's a great guy and we're inside hanging out he's got all these beautiful photographs of weed all over the walls full color and i'm looking at him I'm like wow is this your grow he says yeah that's from the late that's from 69 that's from 70 that's from 68 i'm like holy shit, those are color photographs and he's like yeah Buddy of mine is a professional photographer, and then he starts telling me, "Yeah, it was you know a handful of us. We ended up going to Amsterdam. We went to the Pashtun Dune Mountains and done it." And I'm just thinking to myself, "This is the story that I heard when I'm 16 years old in New York growing up, and this is the guy." So he's telling me the same story, but from the other side. And then he breaks out his his photo book and is showing me all these pictures from afghanistan in the mountains sitting with the pashtun hash masters and giving them this i mean it was unbelievable truly insane so that yeah, kind of the stories the that need to be told because me, it's literally
2: know? folklore and like yeah with the afghani like streams oh, that like jameson literally talks about every chance that he can get well
1: dude for You know, hearing this in New York, you kind of in the background think it might be true, it might not, but you might as well believe it. And then here I am just innocently working with this guy and he tells me this story. And as he's telling me the story, I'm like, I know the story, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and then he's showing me all the pictures of him, you know, as basically a teenager. I'm like, holy shit. It's
2: crazy that so, it came up like organic like that. It's not like you got referred to him by somebody else because you were trying to hunt down <laughs> like that that's the best part seed strain. You well, know, no, it's just it, like and, it naturally and
4: happened. And it's like holy shit! Indoor. It was
3: it was your destiny. Yeah. I like, designed man. this his indoor.
1: Right. Amazing. He was super paranoid because of the old days, even still, and he he wanted to be super slick and clandestine with his indoor, but he was super heady. That's all he knew, you know. Um, he grew the shit out of certain strains, and that's all he grew. He grew purple, you know. He was, like, the sickest uh, old-school purple kush grower you ever want to know. Definitely. Was like Harry, great,
0: were, were, did you get involved in, in the glass scene at all with, you know, when you were smoking hash? Did you get definitely you know, and, and touring with the dead
1: Just like you said on dead tour you know um some of the first glass well the, not, not even some of the first glass that i ever saw that was hand blown like that was on dead tour and it was the swirled color changing glass the bag. snodgrass the snodgrass yeah, and this was yeah. in the 80s you know and, and yeah. nobody had seen anything like that oh yeah no that's that's my time. That's, you know, that's when I was definitely went the craziest. Uh, was so grateful
3: what was your, your, what, was the your first, story.
1: <laughs> what was your first story? What was your, it is, it, it is. The it's the coolest story. Where, like I have my first piece somewhere. It's just a handpipe pipe with, uh, with the,
0: a carb. What was your first dab? What, did you, did you ever dab off a titanium swing or, or did describe to us your first dab?
1: well, <laughs> my first dabs weren't off of any of the traditional things you know i was so i was i was making hash oil and putting it on weed and trying to smoke it and get it any way i could and i just couldn't get enough you know it sucked because i was getting really good at making hash oil with ethanol it was cryogenic ethanol was my bag exclusively for a while there and i just couldn't um this was pre-rosin and definitely before uh, full melt as we know it now. We definitely had melty shit but not like not like what we got now. Um anyway, so to answer your question, we we did it any way we could. I mean, I I sacrificed many boro bowls and would just put like a thousand screens in a boro bowl and torch it and drop a blob of oil in there cherry red and just take a cherry red hit, you know, and like almost drop dead. <laughs> um and 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 so I have done swing hits I remember going over to a friend's house very early on I mean I guess this was I mean not that early but it was probably the early 2000s and he had a swing much like that and it was BHO and it was sour diesel BHO and it threw me on my ass like I literally was speechless it was unbelievable um, those were the dabs where you couldn't breathe after. Oh yeah. Totally unpurged, still plenty of lipids in it, but you know, way more potent than anything we'd ever seen. And, and sour diesel is just potent shit period. Uh, the was thing there, that we graduated into before we had courts, the thing that I was most fond of was we would get a very thick borrow bowl and you know, you heat borrow, a certain amount of times it cracks, period. But what we would do is get these very thick boro bowls that a friend of ours made. They were like a quarter inch thick, so they stayed hot for a long time. And we'd put a stainless screen on the bottom and then we'd fill it up with boro beads. These little tiny like eighth inch or sixteenth inch beads. The turf pearls that everybody uses now. Yeah. Now, but we'd fill the whole bowl with it okay we'd literally fill a bucket full and we'd heat the shit out of it and then take a dabber that's gooped up in ethanol extract and then just jam it in there red hot (laughs) and just you can imagine how much that hurt but but we get annihilated and unfortunately we were so desperate for so long to get a good hit off of oil that that was good at that point uh but that's it how i started diving too we graduated to some good bowls you know once quartz came on there was no turning back
3: that's how i started diving to just borrow bowls and just ripping them red hot and slamming dabs into it and then started finally like linking up with glass blowers and getting them to blow basically like little globes like little you know like meth globes essentially yeah. yeah yeah essentially and slamming dabs into that yeah. And then it's just like, no, 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 I I want a joint on it. And they're like, What do you want a joint on it for? It's just like because I'm not smoking rock, I'm trying to dab some <laughs> like <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is like this is like the evolution of hot knives, which is like that comment right there. You know what I mean? Um, and just slowly morphing it into into kind of something where you're not gonna be exploding bowls or like having the the metals off gas and it's actually gonna be a bit healthier
2: I actually did for a little while at one time because I didn't have anything to dab on and it was pre-titanium and I had made oil um I took a bunch of they were glass screens but it was just like a it, it looked like uh what's that game with the the ball and the little metal things when you're a kid
1: oh yeah that you go like this yeah yeah, yeah. so they all interlock right called, okay. so anyways
2: yeah, I put like a few of those into like into the bowl at the bottom, and same thing. It was just Ker-plunk. a shitty bowl. What's that? Something like that.
3: Kerplunk.
1: Might have been. I don't know. Anyways, game? you know what I mean, right? Like they're yeah, like yeah.
2: crisscross little T yeah. things, and then, yeah, I would heat the shit out. Jacks. That's what someone just said. Jacks, you got it. Uh, yeah, so I would put like four or five of those into a into a bowl and heat the shit out of those. Same thing, and then like yeah, you get like I don't know. Sometimes it would be the first couple of dabs and it would blow up. Sometimes you'd get like a week's worth and it would be awesome, but. You knew it was going to blow up. You just had to be careful.
1: I went through so many Boro bowls. It was lucky that I had a friend that had just piles of them, you know, because I would just want to go through so many. It was crazy. I also um, used the, um, what's it called, the VapeX for a little while. VapeX, yeah? Right. Great device. What is that? I, I went through so many vials, you know, yeah. literally. I'm just such a user. It's ridiculous. I... And I'm friends with Sabo, so he'd send me piles of vials, and it was like— uh, to
3: Sabo. He's like, fucking dope. dope. I know He's Sabo awesome. from like the old forum days. I used to chat with him back then. Yeah, awesome guy, and That's awesome so to see his success. Yeah.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah, I've known Sabo for like twenty-something years.
3: Type man, He's you old. have the coolest story. Like the intersection of your story with like the evolution of. Everything we talk about is we haven't even incredible. talked about
1: the fact that my neighbor was Lawrence Ringo yet. Oh <laughs> well, <God>. yeah, like...
3: <laughs> you know who he
1: is? Oh yeah,
0: I know. Well, I know. I know uh Baked in Humboldt really well. So,
1: I... oh, you know Baked. You know, know Rachel. Fact, okay, right? well, so Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Rachel is always going to be near and dear to people like myself because she held our. She was like our triple. Triple secure of our genetics, Lawrence and my base yeah. medical got to have genetics. She she kept them going and kept them hidden for years. And we love her because of that. And and my oil was in all of her stuff, by the way. Nobody ever knew that. But that was my oil uh, for a very long That's time. That's awesome. Uh, but so, that aside, you know, Lawrence was the his... best I've ever had.
0: I think I'll ever have in my entire life.
1: That's awesome that you got to try it, man. That's awesome. That was a serious uh, evolution. So Ringo, Ringo was my neighbor. And um, when he was doing all of his breeding is basically when I got diagnosed and when I was dying. And um, so we I mean, there's a lot to it. There's an awful lot to it. Are you you comfortable talking about what you were? Are you comfortable talking about what you were diagnosed with, Terry? I was diagnosed with first and foremost COPD and just an overall autoimmune response that currently you know, has been just COPD and uh, ulcerative colitis and then Crohn's colitis. So ulcerative colitis is like the lower colon and, and Crohn's colitis is basically from your small intestine down to your colon. I had to include the whole party you know, I had to get it all in. <laughs> I was going to say it's it's
2: when you talk about autoimmune diseases, this is where like my yeah doctor background comes in,
1: um, you know. So autoimmune can... disease is my passion. And so, you know, so this is this is the God's <laughs> honest truth. You know, as I moved up here because I was dying and I found cannabis to be the solution and because, you know, I ended up saving my life, what ends up happening is, you know, it it is a miracle and by word of mouth you know i literally over the course of a couple of years started having myself and ringo started having hundreds of people come from all over the world uh, each week Uh, people that were out of time and out of options and um, we produced hundreds of pounds of uh cannabis oil and gave it away Uh, which is why both him and I didn't realize he was doing this to himself too I should have known that but both of us basically destroyed ourselves financially because we just gave everything away we went from growing in the traditional market to giving all of our all of our product away but it got out of control like that and so I ended up uh, a few things happened all at the same time Ringo passed away he didn't end up taking his own advice or his own medicine you know soon enough which sucks and we love him and miss him dearly um, but the reality is he bred all the original cbd strains that people are using today whether they realize it or not i mean unless you brought in actual fiber hemp most of that stuff went through Ringo right here on this hill and uh, we owe him an awful lot i owe him my life you know and he he came up with the sour tsunami the original sour tsunami which we found out through testing you got to remember this is before there were any labs in America um we ended up having the benefit of the word about this medicine got out enough that a beautiful woman named Samantha Miller who is a PhD chemist that owns pure analytics um before that she was quantifying her testing of cannabis was very passionate about medical cannabis and helping people and she connected with ringo and started doing testing for him for basically nothing and the tens of thousands of tests is the long and short of it i'm trying to shrink this down because it's very long-winded but the long and short of it is through thousands of seed poppings and thousands and thousands of tests um they discovered you know the higher ratios everybody would be like oh CBD rich it was like a half a percent or one percent all of a sudden we had 15 20 percent CBD people were like oh my God and then we found 20 to one and one to one and three to one and nobody had been talking about ratios back then this was Samantha Miller and people like Martin Lee from project CBD all the original people are the people that really unknowingly You know kind of kicked off what we all know today as the cbd revolution and these ratios that you see all over the place 20 to 1 1 to 1 3 to 1 they don't come out of nowhere they come out of basically our broad groups experimentation a long time ago and then everybody just running with it not really advancing it just running with it which is it's something but you know they didn't keep the ball going So anyway, Ringo bred, He got to the Sour Tsunami, the original seed plant. um, I was unbelievably sick, okay? And I got to the point where I was introduced to Dr. Simpson. This is pre-RSO, pre-Phoenix tears. And I had a brief conversation with him where he basically talked down to me. He's very condescending and told me, that taking cannabis oil is exactly what i need and you know the fact that i've been using cannabis to date doesn't mean shit and this is what you need to do and this is how you do it and you need to eat a gram a day and go away kid kind of thing and so he totally from that point on being extremely motivated he saved my life because i turned a pound of chem dog that i had grown You know, because I was growing in the traditional market at that time. So I took my best pound of chem dog, turned it into RSO, what we call our RSO now. And I started eating that. 30 days into that course, I started feeling better, but I really wasn't there. And that's when we discovered what uh, Ringo was sitting on, the first round of tests. And so we immediately made RSO. He made RSO out of the original, and I still have some of this in my drawer, out of the original seed plant, which was a three to one. And so I took that for the next 60 days, a gram a day, totally unscientifically. And um, right around the 55th day, not even the 60th day, I woke up one morning and forgot that I was sick. And that is a big deal because I always woke up sick, vomiting and shitting myself and bleeding and very horrendous, you know, uh, to wake up like startled sick every day. So I woke up and started to go about my day and realized that I didn't feel like shit. And I said, something's going on here. And uh, I was terrified for the next year to lower my dosage so i ate a gram a day for the next year and then my body finally told me that i was in good enough shape to taper down and so i tapered down and, and that whole time we kept on growing that three to one we honed in on it we did better selections and so on he had then made the can the harley sue the swiss sue um he had thrown so many acdc seeds all over the country you wouldn't believe it you know He gave away so many seeds to breed with. A lot of people don't know this. And this is the truth. And it's too bad because Lawrence really deserves a lot of credit. And I am passionate about it because it saved my life. But he deserves a lot of credit for the fact that um, the original Charlotte's Web came from Ringo. And a lot of people do not know that. Uh, The people that sold the charlotte's web and cultivated it went to the original san bernardino high times event that lawrence vended at and he was with rachel rachel had clones of some of his strains and he had seeds so they bought i believe it was the can clones from rachel and they bought the seeds from lawrence and took the mail that they got that was worth the shit pollinated their canisoo and that's charlotte's web folks and so unfortunately lawrence did not get credit for that and he wasn't looking for it but god damn it he deserves it you know and before i go i'm definitely going to make sure that people know you know because he saved my life and um i i you know his genetics are what we use in our medical tinctures to this day And it's not coincidence, it's because of the work that he put in to to get to where they are now. Um, You can find CBD genetics out there, but they're not like the library that he created where the spectrum is so broad and you you can't even believe it, you know? Um, So anyway, that's a little bit about that. That is so cool. I was gonna say, people
2: people don't realize that uh, with autoimmune diseases, it's not just a single presentation it's your whole body, right? So it's not, it's not just like one thing. It's many things. And, and definitely, you know, for many people, cannabis is, uh, is, is medicine. We're not talking just about, about, you know, dabbing and, and enjoying it. We're talking real medicine to change your life or to restore your life. Um, and, and these are some of these real conditions. Um, and the other thing I want to say is is you're absolutely right, you know, I don't think people realize with with autoimmune diseases there's many people that that die of rheumatoid arthritis, of sarcoid, of lupus, of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. But you you don't hear about that. You hear about the people that are living with it and and have struggled and, and whatever, but you know, as you said, it it likely saved your life and it, it made those those changes to to literally get through the flare-ups that were going to be life and death. So you know, I appreciate you sharing that because that's really deep.
1: Was, I just didn't know, you know. And that's and that's I what really I was going to say.
2: You know, people hear, oh, you have you have arthritis or you have rheumatoid arthritis. That sucks. Maybe your hands aren't going to work, or you have you have you have Crohn's disease. You have to take no a shit way, all the man. time. And it's like it's so much deeper than that. Those are maybe the two things that you see or that you hear about.
1: But it's it literally ruins your life. Dude. It ruins my yeah, life. It did. I had to stop doing everything that I was doing. I almost died. I almost lost everything. You know, I came really close. So I was going to say, uh, thank you for
2: sharing that and for mentioning that and, and, and really putting the, the light on that. Cause I don't think, you know, we, we talk about, it's okay to have fire medicine and to have really good medicine and good tasting medicine in, in this case as far as, you <laughs> know, terpenes, but, but you know, oh, I, yeah. It's medicine, too, as well, right? So there's, there's two sides to that. And I think you touched on that earlier, you know, the two sides of, of that. Oh, okay. What are your opinions on that as far as rec versus medical market?
1: Well, I'm one of those crazy old guys that believes that all use is medicinal. So I just want to state that for the record. People don't realize it the thing that's magical about cannabis in particular, there's other things like this is you're definitely attracted to it for medical reasons without knowing it, you know, and I think that's probably why I was so heavily attracted to it I'm prone for autoimmune disposition, you know, um, it's interesting, but, um, I want to say that when it comes to people with autoimmune disease, you know, it's one of those things that it's such a big bucket that doctors you know in the western medicine world they just throw it into this bucket and there, there is so much to it and there's so many things like people don't realize that COPD is an autoimmune response it can be an autoimmune response due to permanent damage that's done but yet it still is considered an autoimmune response and can be controlled in similar ways you know Certainly, if you destroy your uh, surface area of your lungs, then so you know that's one other topic that I' was having earlier. i want I want jump, I wanna jump in on that, Harry,
0: because that's something I'm really looking forward to really exploring right now. i If you guys don't follow Harry, I suggest you go follow him. He hosts very informative lives. I was just on a live this morning, and he talked about something that we weren't gonna chat about on the show, and now we absolutely have to explore. And I, I think we we might have uncovered it unknowingly and really gotten into it, but it brought to the forefront about your thoughts on on cured versus live resin, and the potential implications heavy usage can do to lung tissue. I, I, it's it's a divisive topic that you know is sometimes uncomfortable to talk about, but every single person on this. Panel can be described as a heavy user, and you know I think a lot of people listening to shows like this are probably heavy users as well. And so I really kind of want to unpack this um, from start to finish and and explore it not only with with Brian but RJ, who I think you know have really leading minds in in this space. And and is there a
2: positive twist to it that we can adapt or change? Is my second part.
0: Well, it's just
3: I'm excited for this because it's 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 going to alter the narrative for us, right? Like. For the last couple shows for the last couple of weeks everything has kind of been leading up to this i feel this is a great conversation to be had right now on this show because of the whole you know we got into it with bird a little bit you know the freshest press is always you know the most terp rich and then you know the the kind of sidebar conversation to that is that the best thing? You know, is that the best way for this cultivar? And now to to parallel, you know, kind of preceding conversations, is that the best it's for like our lives? The wrong guy so, to talk
1: about this with? No, no, no. I, <laughs> no, like, I didn't no, we, oh, did. no, we didn't.
3: Shit.
1: It go. It is deep. It is deep. I mean, let's go. So there's there's let's so go. much to this topic. It's funny. <laughs> I love it though.
3: No, I'm 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 excited to get into it. So yeah, let's uh let's delve. Like I mean.
1: There, there's a lot to it. I mean, first, I want to say that I think that, you know, moderating your consumption of anything can be safe, you know, as long as you don't go crazy, but if you're going to be a power user of a power user of a substance and use it over and over and over again. You really should look into what you're doing, right? Like your fuel source, the grade of quartz that you're you're consuming out of these things start to matter with repeated use and you know diseases and reactions come suddenly out of places where you don't know where the hell they came from so it's scary and so it depends if you are a power user it really makes a difference but just in general you know we've been working i i started working with cured flour nobody ever thought about using you know wet flour you'd be out of your mind you know but Now with fresh frozen, there's a lot of problems with it. And, you know, a lot of people when when fresh frozen first came out, you know, I was kind of against it right from the get go. And the the reason back then was these plants emit things that we don't generally test for under these conditions. And so, you know, dangerous compounds could sneak through potentially such as different forms of um chloroform potentially is expressed by the plant um benzene is expressed by the plant um there's there's kind of harsh chemicals if you will that are expressed by the plant certain phenos at certain points and so when you take the fresh material and dry it you really rid yourself of that problem because they're they volatilize in the process of you drying and curing it and it's no longer there at least at any levels that anybody cares about if you just capture that in an ice cube basically and wash that and potentially bring that forward with you into the hash concentrating it i think you can you know bring problems uh, with that that will escape coa testing for sure We don't test for a lot. We do test for a lot. We test too sensitive in certain circumstances. But I think, oh, I know that a lot of things can sneak by um, that would be hazardous that you wouldn't want. And certainly black market stuff, um, you could only imagine how horrendous it would be with all the potential biologicals that could be present and would never get caught because it's not being tested. Early on, the biologicals were very present in the live materials uh, everybody failed once testing started and then <clears throat> then all then the next year everybody failed for fungicides you know and pesticides and so it took a long time before people actually started cultivating in a way where they were going to pass in the real world but those same practices are implored in the black market and they're not really going to the extent that they need to in a lot of circumstances to clean up their hash so that makes it extra dangerous you know if you get a cult, if you get a a, a batch of fresh frozen from people that you don't even know exactly how it's grown certainly i've seen people lie about how they're cultivating you know they're actually using fluoramite and avid and eagle 20 and they're telling everybody that they're organic and because it's invisible nobody knows and because it's not getting tested nobody knows and unfortunately the black market's riddled with that when you pull stuff out of the black market and test it it's horrendous a lot of times so all that being said you know there is something towards um, a solvent-based extract where you would be cleaning a lot of that up but on the solvent side
3: Sorry, do you have any experience yeah. in, in like the freeze-dried preparation of cannabis and, and how that would affect kind of terpenes? And like, is that a happy medium between the dry and the fresh frozen? Do, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it, it could be done. Um, I certainly think that if you did it really carefully and brought it down to a certain moisture level and didn't crisp the shit out of it, You could do it but if you just go for it i think you're going to end up with a mess i know you are because i've tried it you know (laughs) it gets really fine really fast you know so if you used it to your advantage to get it to the perfect moisture level it might work um i don't know here's the thing you know what i am getting into is actually curing the fresh frozen because the real issue for you know the biggest issues if, if I'm the cultivator and I know it's safe and I know it's clean, I clean my plants with congen water with hypochlorous acid before I harvest. So I know that it's biologically safe. I know it's clean.
2: Oh, hypochlorous. That's amazing. So you do, hypochlorous you do is dunks. what we use actually to disinfect our uh, office.
3: Are you doing like a, a foliar spray or are you actually dunking the cannabis?
1: Um, I actually use a hydrostatic sprayer and soak the crap out of the plants three days in a row and then harvest it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I use a Kangen machine to make 2.5 hypochlorous acid. And before that, I use uh, sodium hydroxide, which is a um, degreaser, basically. So it'll strip any of the stuff that's been flying around. You know, so I strip it, then I disinfect it and polish those trichomes and cut it down. So that's another reason why that stuff was pretty good that I gave Kylie is, you know, there's handling <laughs> like that. done. But that's, incredible. The other, that's incredible. So, you know, you spray it down, you make it really safe like that. That makes a big difference. And then if you're washing it also, you have to make sure you really clean it up there's a lot of people that do very strange things like they'll toss the first and last wash and things like that for me i'll test the material i'll test the i'll do a small test wash and test that you know i don't know why Um, you're gonna i don't know people do people have very interesting methods of how they calculate what they do you know and so do i you know
0: what are your thoughts on on, what
1: are
0: your thoughts on cured resin versus live resin or rosin for that matter is, is, is as far as the volatile i'm kind of wanting to lead you in the direction of the the volatiles that you were talking about this morning and, and and the potential implications they could have from prolonged exposure
1: you know i i i definitely know that um live resin live rosin and live resin but live rosin uh, versus cured rosin is definitely going to burn your lungs a, way more than than a cured rosin. There's no there's no comparison. Um, it's just the type of terpenes that are in it. First and foremost, you get the mono and sesquiterpenes, which can really rip your lung tissue apart. Uh, are you talking if they're about not cured, cured, cured properly or in the
2: actual rosin? So like curing the plant and then making the hash or curing
1: the rosin from fresh frozen? What most people are talking about is making the hash from fresh frozen and pressing it versus making the hash from cured flour and pressing it. And I think that if you cure it, if you dry it in a certain way first, you can make a better product potentially than live rosin. Um, the problem with live rosin is again it, it really depends on how you make it and and if it's harvested just right what the terpene spectrum is you can end up with a beautiful live rosin and, and end up with this really harsh front end on it because of the those mono and sesquiterpenes and people love it but it just rips your lungs apart and over time Repeated use, you're definitely hurting yourself. You're definitely doing permanent damage to your bronchioles. You're burning them off. Um, they're just, you know, there's a lot of terpenes that we do not test for, and you know, the mono and terpenes are very dangerous to play with. Never mind, um, inhale them deeply. You know,
2: do you think? Do you think is- that um, going from then, fresh frozen and then pressed fresh press versus cured rosin you can you can uh, off gas then those more volatile ones or change them or do you think you must go to a cured flower and then wash it
1: and go for it you rest? know that's that's what in my mind that remains to be seen i have had some very interesting results curing Fresh frozen hash before pressing it. It is definitely different if you cure it uh, for for like a year um, versus doing it right away. It definitely, especially if you're burping in jars. In what kind of temperature? Uh, typically negative 20.
3: So like fresh, frozen, and then in the freezer for a year.
0: And Correct. at negative 20 and years, no, no, but already, already washed, right? It's, yeah.
2: Already yeah. washed, right? Like it's hash wow. that you're curing. And, and, but
1: not you know, pressed. it's just easier. Oh, I thought it was and,
3: material that was in there for a year. No, 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 no
1: it's, okay. it's, it's, it's the hash.
3: Okay, it's cool. That's And what about, and what about
2: then? So cu- that material cured and pressed versus that material fresh pressed and cured as rosin. The,
1: have you ever done something like that? Um, the raws, you know. Either way, time definitely cures. If you're, if you keep it 100% airtight with chemical okay. seals and everything, God knows. But nobody really has that in the real world, even if they think they do. <laughs> I can tell you, I have some pretty good, you know, vessels. But still, uh, you can tell that somehow, some way. Uh, but but yes and and so that's the thing if you cut a plant down wash it press it smoke it it is definitely a different experience than if you extend the cure time of the hash or if you extend the cure time of the rosin before you either press and smoke it or just smoke the hash the rosin rather it's definitely it definitely smooths out and I'm sure it's because those mono and sesquiterpenes are converting. You are losing certain terpenes. They're volatizing and you're getting certain conversions. Yeah.
2: RJ a while ago uh, sent me an article and it was um, basically that if you're also dabbing, whatever, this was more so in the BHO times. Um, if If you're dabbing at temperatures basically above 600, um, then a lot of the terpenes are turning into benzene byproducts. That's and right. so you are actually inducing the benzene change, but I had never heard. And it makes sense that I've never heard though, that you have to get the off gas, but that actually makes sense when you open a jar and it burns your nose. And it's like,
1: listen to my voice. Some, my like friend. fresh press. <laughs> listen to my voice. <laughs> I can tell you from personal experience and and it also comes from extracting you know um i am really happy to see a lot of the younger generation because nobody listens to to old people i'm very happy to see the young generation wearing respirators now even when they're washing because uh, yes it does volatilize to the point where you will develop serious issues if you do a lot of washing and guys that are serious about it that have done a lot of washes black market or white are now realizing that their lungs are fried and they can't breathe right and so just by wearing a respirator when they wash it changes their life i discovered that the hard way myself you know being and it's the same thing with ethanol i i was working in a room with negative pressure you couldn't smell the ethanol it wasn't burning your nose but when you have that much in the air and that much is volatizing, it's getting in there somehow. And it's part of the reason why my lungs are so screwed up right now because I wasn't wearing proper uh, PPE back then.
2: Um, so what I was going to say is, um, do you think the index is a better way of consumption to ensure that you're holding those, those temperatures and not inducing that benzene? Cause Definitely, if you're hitting, you know, as, they, as the young kids say, Glowies for Kobe, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, then, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're causing some benzene rings. And I thought about it and I was like, wait a minute. If I've taken one of those dabs in the past, it's not that, like, I'm crazy high. It's that it's noxious fumes. Yeah. And that's why you get so high and pass out. It's not that you're so high and pass out. It's noxious fumes. It hurt like,
3: shit. When it's... the Hive Ceramic, when the Hive Ceramic domeless Nails first came out, it was just like, I remember sitting, like, standing around in, like, a sesh with, like, 10 people and heating it up, like, red hot, and then just start launching dabs. And I think we got 11 dabs off of that. And I took, like, a couple fucking heaters. You know what I mean? And, like, back then you didn't really think about it. And then it's like, now you're like, holy fuck, like, the damage. The damage that I did, like just being an ignorant
1: fuck, is My first real big red hot hit literally threw me against the wall and I slid down onto the floor and I had to sit there for a minute, you know, to to realize what happened. I finally got the hit that I wanted.
2: (laughs) So I was actually, so this was uh, nine years ago now. My wife and I took a trip and we went to um, Spain, Barcelona, and then we took like a, a cruise and then we stayed there for like... A week so we found out like the cannabis scene there's like little clubs that you go to and like you know hash was like Lebanese hash black hash and otherwise it was like BHO. but like at that time we had already known about like making sure that it was completely like I don't know RJ took over that because he, he is an expert in that I didn't do that anymore and um, anyway so I'm over there we get into a cannabis club and they're like, oh, do you want to get, do you want to get flour? I was like, no, no, you guys have concentrates. And he's like, yeah, we've got this, you know, butane honey oil. It's from a closed loop system, blah, blah, blah. And I get a dab and it's from like this dirty titanium nail. That's like so burning hot. It's still, it's still glowing. And like I hadn't dabbed in two weeks cause we were on a cruise
1: and, um, oh, you feel that thing. I'm trying to get a large expression of the profile.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say you you.
1: I didn't feel, I haven't been filling it that much.
0: I'm gonna fill mine more.
2: <laughs> yeah. So basically, I was gonna say that I like. I like fucking.
1: On, I think it also depends on how much oil you have to use.
2: I uh I got fucked. I passed out in the uh, consumption lounge, and uh, yeah, like sweating, like. Took me like forty-five minutes to like get up, and I was like, "It's not that I'm so high," and I knew it, like I could feel it. But I was like, "My," it, it was like literally somebody punched me in the face, and like, uh, it was it was a different effect. It wasn't obviously was was wasn't what I was used to or what I wanted. And my uh, first
3: real dab was off like a a coal, like a charcoal, and like a swing arm, because my buddy had broken his actual swing arm, and he still had the rig. So I took a dab off the coal. And I just remember taking, like, maybe two dabs and just sitting there in Vapor Central in Toronto, which is a, an old-style <laughs> lounge, and just sitting there, like, like, having to hold on and, like, gripping the couch and being, like, so fucking high. And, like, after smoking tons of hash and, you know what I mean, like, thinking I had, like, a big, a big tolerance and then just kind of, like, taking that next level of, of consumption method and then it's just like holy fuck like this is almost too much you know
2: but that's not that's not really being high you were kind of like poisoned kind of
1: i had to wait like 20 years before i got to do dabs man you guys the younger generation got well no i started i started
2: smoking when i was like 12 the same thing i i think that was my first experience with cannabis and then you know, extracts, it was probably when I met RJ, it was 20, almost 18, 19 years ago now. Um, So I had gone maybe 12, 13 years with smoking, with, with using cannabis. Um, But yeah, not, not as long. We definitely have it better. People don't realize even 10 years ago, what it looked like as you said I what the a lot 90s of hash like.
1: though that's another reason why my lungs are so screwed up because god knows what was in a lot of that you... middle eastern hash that I smoked but I loved it I loved the old it.
0: gold seal <laughs> do you feel Harry that oh, you're, breaking you're going up. to continue to oh can you hear me can you hear me now okay um do you feel like there's going to be a continued proliferation of live rosin and resin in the markets? Or do you f- feel that there's going to be a turnover to a, a more cured product offering
1: or a, mo- a more popularity in the cured product offering? I didn't quite hear all of that because you were breaking up, but now you're okay. Can you say that again? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So do you feel...
0: As though we're going to continue to see, oh, I don't feel like he hears me now. Damon, how are we doing? Uh, It looks like his camera's dropped.
3: No problem. Yeah, we just might have to wait a second. It's like you said, he lives out in the middle of nowhere. Hey,
0: man, no worries. That's, you're loud. I've dropped out twice now, and I'm
3: in a big city, so. Yeah, I dropped out once earlier.
2: I want to know if there's a difference in the terpene expression doing air dried versus, versus, uh, what's it called, Uh, freeze dryer.
0: Absolutely. I'm back. Absolutely. No problem. Harry, I wanted to talk a little bit about your opinion on where you think the market's going to go specifically for the concentrate category. Do you think we're going to see a continued proliferation of, live resin and rosin offerings or do you feel as though the market is going to mature and the taste is going to mature and and, and move towards a more curated product
1: well you broke up again dude but I think that what you were asking me was what do I think is going to happen in the market in terms of DAB products is live resin
0: is live product gonna continue or is the cured product gonna research
1: I would I mean part of the problem with cured product, you know, is if if cured is the answer, then we need innovation to happen, right? Like when the live products was the thing, innovation happened for it, and that's where we move forward in all styles at first it was just butane then it was co2 then it was solventless i mean nobody could believe that everybody was using fresh frozen material we're not equipped to do um cured in volume and and what i mean by that is it's really hard to find enough dry space it's really hard enough to find enough dry space to do it properly so if you're going to be curing enough stuff perfectly to do solventless unless you don't care and that could happen too there could be a lot of mids out there and it still will be better than most you know um but certainly i think that as solventless technology changes a lot of people are going to move to it because what the average person doesn't realize, what, uh, what we have to go through to get um, the proper occupancies for building department codes to put in things like ethanol and butane extraction labs and CO2, it's kind of a big deal, expensive, and a pain in the butt. And you bypass a lot of that when you're doing solventless, water-based, mechanical things. You just bypass a whole big headache of engineering and fire compliance and so on. And a lot There's of people are realizing that now in saying that the yield is nowhere near what you need to get to make crude, to make distillate. And that's where the big market is. So that's where the big gap is. And yeah. that's going to continue. I think that a lot of that's going to be ethanol based extractions because it's very efficient. It's the safest and you get great yields for crude oil. That'll be the distillate path. You know, I think that there'll be a whole lot of ethanol unless somebody has some other brilliant discovery. And then I, I, think, I know I that as hydrocarbons, scale, off, as hydrocarbons scale up, I think
3: that it's gonna start potentially encroaching on that ethanol production. Um but I think you're right. I think for the long the long term it's the, gonna be ethanol. Appliance. It's the right. Sorry. We're also in that. Canada. In California, we're also especially. in, we're also, yeah, we're also in Canada. So it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, California, it's a type
1: seven, big deal. and, and for good reason, you know, we are in fire country, we are in earthquake country. I mean, let's face yeah. it. So using compressed gases, never, never mind ones that oxidize and blow buildings to smithereens, we got to be a little cautious with, but, uh, maybe i mean the bottom line is people are fine it, it the, the bottom line is that there's they're going to figure out a, a way to to turn the crap into crude into distillate and that's going to happen at mass scale they want to do a 1000 yeah. pound at a time type of extraction and yeah. you know however that happens they're going to do it um and to a certain extent it almost doesn't matter if they're going to turn it into distillate right yeah Uh, it doesn't really matter how they make the crude to a certain extent
3: but i think solventless is taking
1: off i know it is in california um and uh, if if you were to to, see a lot more of it
0: if you were to completely disregard logistics and regulations and and just looked at extraction methodologies do you feel as though there's a future in the hybridization between solventless and solvent-based methodologies or do you feel that that's more or less sacrosanct and, and should be left completely separated?
1: Again, you broke up. can you okay. hear me? No it worries. Sucks. No worries. That's a
0: bummer. No um, I'm going to switch my headphones, no, and it, I'm going to ask it. another question. Just one second.
2: He was asking, if, can you hear me better? So far, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he was asking the you know, uh, logistics aside, do you think that there's, um, still a market for solvent based extraction in the future? If it wasn't for logistics, he said, just based on the techniques.
1: I, I would have to say yes, because until somebody figures out How to really maximize the yield and get the high quality out of every last bit of cannabis, it's still going to be a lot more cost effective from a cheap standpoint to use a solvent. You get it all. Uh, The other problem is, and we haven't delved into this, in terms of a medical standpoint, um, solventless is not the answer. you You actually need the complete spectrum that you're going to get from the plant and you can only get that properly without the bonds broken without losing the metabolites etc through ethanol currently um everything else that we have tried and tested does some type of molecular bond breaking crashing uh losing of spectrum distorting of spectrum whatever so uh, if you're talking about medical and that's why we use exclusively cryogenic ethanol extract in our medical products is because it is the best medicine and it works the best it's the most powerful it's the most efficacious for the largest group for so
3: sure. the hydrocarbons actually break the bonds too much and to be considered in the most like efficacious way a medical product you need to
1: have the alcohol for the extractions kind of what so what doing? happens Ethanol leaves these molecular strings fairly intact and lifts it off the plant and allows me to dry it in a way that I can leave it that way. Whereas there's a lot of reactions going on when you're doing butane. And first of all, hydrocarbon right off the bat is very uh, direct and precise. And so it, it intentionally almost rips certain bonds apart. And when you see sauce and diamonds, right, which is, what a lot of people would say is some of the the purest extracts and so on that that are out there and you're getting all of it and you do a great job of yield getting all those flavonoids and terpenes but that crashing right the fact that you can pull a diamond out and hold it well guess what that thca is definitely not still attached to the to the molecules that are in that dish and so you know at, at a very simple at a very simple level Yes, and and by design CO two same thing, right? You yeah. have separation chambers where you're actually doing intentional fractioning, where you're 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 bringing it up to eighteen hundred psi or higher, and stripping part of the sect the section of a spectrum and dropping it into that chamber. So by design, you're intentionally breaking those bonds, and in that, not only are you shaving off part of the spectrum, but certain uh certain distillants and certain um certain types of uh solvents are better than others at picking up fats and waxes some aren't some are better at picking up water solubles and some aren't and right. some just pick up you know very specific things and when you get into hydrocarbon you are getting very specific <clears throat> and that's why a lot of people started doing things at very low temperatures and or uh, winterizing their product is because part of the process by design you're losing the metabolites that process lipids in your lungs which are naturally on board in the cannabis plant and because of that if you don't winterize it or you don't do it at extreme temperatures you could potentially if you're a power user like we are give yourself lipid pneumonia so You know, hydrocarbon is very efficient and you get everything. And I think that for certain things, you know, it depends on what you're going for. I like full spectrum, uh, you know, everything, whether I just take a 10 milligram edible or an oil, you know, uh, distillate gives me headaches, really piercing type of headaches. Isolate, you know, non-mechanical isolate, which is interesting because mechanical isolate does not give me a splitting headache. So I can't fully explain that scientifically, but it does hurt, and it, it actually gives me a metallic taste in my mouth. Um, so, what do you think? Saying about, that, I think that, I think there's going to be a place at the table for all this stuff. I really do. Um, I think it depends on where you are as to how easy it'll be to set up. But you know, hydrocarbon is so efficient. I don't know how that's going to go away. CO2. Maybe, maybe it'll fade away more. Maybe. I don't know. Solventless is definitely picking up as it's mechanizing.
3: Right? I think I think we're gonna start seeing CO2 phase out. I think we're already kind of starting to see that. Um yeah. but I think you're right as as other extraction methods kind of ramp up and gain efficiencies, especially solventless. I think it's gonna change the landscape of how things look kind of moving forward.
1: I I agree. But again. You know, with the solvent list, you're whoa.
0: Feel as though there's a. Are you there? A, yep, we're here. <laughs>
1: yeah, you guys still there? Yeah, yeah we're your here. Video just That's dropped there. <coughs> oh, your video right. dropped out. Ooh. Stand by, guys. No worries. We have a power outage. Oh.
2: anything can happen.
0: Such a cool guy.
2: Man, he's uh crossed paths with a lot of the legends.
3: Man, the dopest stories, the dopest history <laughs> and like I can't believe how his history coincides with like everything. Yeah. It just like for the first like 40 minutes I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like who is I this wonder. Guy? I wonder about
2: temperatures and medicinal effects.
0: Well, you better ask because this is going to That's ask. what I'm saying.
2: That's, that's,
0: that's what like,
3: I, I, need to,
0: I need to ask him. I, I completely forgot the question I was going to ask. So remember yours.
3: Yours was like, it's the, it sounded like, is there an intersection between solvent and solventless tech or something? Yeah, like that? that was
0: my question. That was my question. Ah. was like, we're starting to see a hybridization between, you know, organic methodologies and cell-based methodologies. And I just wanted to know if his opinion would be what his opinion on was the hybridization between solvent based extraction methodologies and solvent less extraction methodologies. And if there's a space for hybridization between the two, I mean, what do you think about it?
3: Listen, I have my private, (laughs) I have my private thoughts. I have my private thoughts and, uh, and they're going
0: to stay that way. I guess.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think. Listen, there's always going to be an evolution, and with everything that you look at right now, the majority of guys doing um, right. solventless. Um. No, okay. Not okay. Sorry, that's a generalization. The there's a lot. This is this is what I want to say. That was a, that was a generalization. This is what I want to say. There's a lot of product out on the market in <laughs> both streams, solvent based and solventless that mimic each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very apparent. And will there be a cross section of you know tech to bring the two together?
0: Yeah.
3: I don't know. Maybe. So my well, question people combining my qu- it together mm-hmm.
1: already, but, but-
0: Sorry, Sorry, say that. Say that again, Harry.
1: There's a there are a brand or two out there actually mixing the product to try to get the best of both worlds, both yeah. in split jars, but also combined product. Like yeah. surprise, surprise, occasionally comes out with a combined product. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that California no. brand.
0: Do you see that as a but, growing uh, uh, product offering? Do you see? Uh, I'm seeing in cultivation. Uh, a lot of cultivators trending towards blending methodologies. Do you think that we're going to see a hybridization of solvent based and solvent, less extraction methodologies in in a single product offering or or is that likely, you know, not a route that that you would see expanding? I I
1: mean, I, I would say, I think that there are going to be people like surprise, surprise that feel like getting the best of both worlds from a cultivar is necessary. But currently, the way I see, at least in California, that's where I am, the trend is really going towards more purist, you know, on a broader sense. So, you know, I think people are, you know, it seems like, believe it or not, it's a huge market, but it does seem like the BHO market in California is slowing and the solventless market is picking up. And I can tell you this in a couple of ways, just general observation and seeing what people are asking for. But we sell input materials. I don't just make hash to go in jars. If you did, you'd go broke, you know. So I know that there's a lot more demand for solventless bubble hash right now.
0: What, uh, do, you think, what do you think the maximum yield of the wet weight of a plant is? Where, where do you think that maxes out at?
1: For solventless,
0: yeah, for an ice water extraction, uh,
1: potentially or currently.
0: Potentially, are
1: you talking about usable microns or or or?
0: Is this, I'm talking uh, about usable microns. I'm talking about uh, what I'm leading you towards as as so, somebody who's who's you know had more history in the space than most. Um, where do you think the plant is truly topping out at, at from a yield perspective? from a, a hash makers point of view on usable micron heads. Cause I'm just hearing some numbers these days on, on wet numbers that like, when I crunch those numbers and translate it to dry, I just can't wrap my head around it. And it's the same way, you know, somebody tells me that their plant hit 42% THC or whatever. And I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. And I just kind of wanted to know where you stood on that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, reality's reality is reality and our industry has been full of fishing stories i mean since the beginning of time here and so i hate to tell you or or, or reinforce that but most people are full of pucky you know they talk about this stuff and yields have always been you know this over glorified thing so bullshit a lot of times you know and and so solventless yields generally suck you know that's the truth of it that nobody really wants to tell you and that's why now in a world where licensure and products cost so much to produce everybody nobody wants to touch anything unless it yields less I mean unless it yields at least four percent usable material or more I mean four would be even the low end and that's that's really hard and then and then you know you have to have what in your eyes is usable material right i think that i'm a little bit too critical for solventless to be honest with you and that's why i've had to find a lot of avenues to get rid of the rest of it that i don't use to put into jars but i think that to answer your question i think you know if i hit five percent you know i of usable really nice almost full melt if not full melt material i mean that is a hell of an accomplishment everything has to be right the whole way and <clears throat> I'm, right a home now, drawer, I'm shitting myself and i hit that totally i mean but you know we do have cultivars where we can consistently get that but the thing is a lot of these companies that that make raws and they don't grow you know and so they're at the mercy yeah. of, a, of a mercy of, of the other farmer
0: who who learned to grow growing for f- smokable flour um
1: how, yeah
0: what do you think where, do, where does the plant, plant max out pattern. like what's that per- perfectly grown best cultivar bred for water extraction I think what if it, you
1: really dial it in, yeah. I think it's super heady shit. I think you could probably do ten percent. I know that sounds crazy, but I think it's possible. You know, because I've we've we've done some I mean, this last round of GMO cookies that I grew that I really haven't gotten to do much with yet. A couple of test presses, but um 95 percent of it was heads in between 90 and 103 micron you know and the rest of wow. it was fairly unusable you know that last five wow. percent would be good for edibles but that's about it and it's all melt, you know and so i know that it's possible but that was a five percent yield that was a five percent yield and that was amazing that's and, that's and that doesn't happen all the time like that You know, So I think that, and and here's the other problem, is a lot of the people that are doing selections for hash need people that are more analytical to guide them because there's people that really are gifted at selecting strains that are good for hash. But I think if we get a little bit more technical and give them some guidance, some of those uh, hash charmers, if you will, Um, I think that we can come up with that 10%. Are
0: are there any uh, unique characteristics or things that you have observed over your years in the garden that tips, tricks that you can pass on to other cultivators looking to hunt for specific phenotypes that, that work well in mechanical separation?
1: Well, certainly, you know, obviously there's strains that most people have heard of that are good for that. You know those are if you want to start there and get some male pollen and start hitting phenos of other things that you like that's certainly a great place to start you know there are some knowns. if you can get the original dna seed strawberry banana you know that those heads are going to dump um, their original kosher kush same thing uh, of course the gmo the real crockett cut of the tangy dumps so if you can get those and either s1 and get fortunate enough to get some pollen out of it you know that's that's a good way to start but certainly what you're looking for are stalked capitate dominant plants and when you're doing your selection both the male and female are going to express trichomes and you want to select those as much as possible and breed with those back breed with those and just keep on strengthening that trait the objective goal would be to only have stock capitates and no bulbous surface uh you know surface type of uh, trichomes none of the trichomes that look like little hairs and stuff those are not useful for solventless so when i mean it's it's laborious as hell but that is what we look for we're looking for those natural tendencies there are a few that we already know but a lot of times when we pop almost any new strain, you know, there's there's four to six big swings in those phenotypes unless they are extremely stabilized, which most stuff nowadays is not. <laughs> and, so that leads uh, me
3: kind of back to a question that I have uh, relating okay. to like what you were saying earlier on in the show, where uh, you said that you had melt all the way up into the 220. So A, is that something i've actually posted this on my instagram story last week is it, it, seeing melt into that micron range routine no and can you get it like, is with can GMO you get grains? okay and can you get is it still fire melt at
1: 220. it's ridiculous melt so here's the problem <laughs> it was always it was always in the plant material <laughs> But you know, when we dumped the bag out, there's a big patty in there. We said, "Holy smokes. So that's when we realized we needed to make a two fifty and a 300 bag.
3: That's crazy. Okay, okay. interesting. This changes things in the whole conversation because you know what I mean? like there's saying- a way to
1: clean it up, you know, So yes, once you clean it up, here's the other thing about using Congan water when you're when you're extracting it positively charges it. It gives it a double hydrogen um, atom. It also restructures the water. So the molecule size gets really small. It makes it clean a lot better as it turns out. It really gets in there. But the other good part about it is a lot of the, the undesirables, so to speak, a lot of the water solubles are negative. And so they are literally attracted to the water and flush out. So, the one thing I can pass on as a washing tip to people is use Kong water <laughs> to clean with, to clean your hash with, especially.
2: Wait, uh, yes, yeah, so I was just about to water. say. So,
1: so are okay. you using
2: RO, cold RO water and RO based ice, I guess, in your wash basin? And then, as you're cleaning it afterwards, you're using then um, hypochlorous?
1: No. Um, when okay. I clean, you know, I clean the plants before I hang them, okay, okay, I okay, freeze them with the hypochlorous, and prior to that, I use the 11.5 the sodium hydroxide. But in the washroom, in terms of a spray, we have ice water at on tap. I have a chiller unit that has a sprayer, it keeps the water at just above freezing, just above 32 coming into the booth so i can fill my tubs with already at temperature water and everything i don't need an external tank but the kangen water takes that to another level the kangen water we use the 6.0 is what we're using ph water and that is restructured you know ionized electrolyzed water and so it is charged and it does work better at cleaning the hash um, in terms of literally just getting the dirt off the outside of the trichome it just does a better job and it also does a better job of carrying off plant debris and chlorophyll and water uh, water water-soluble contaminants that would carry through into there and that can also lead to a healthier product because you're not pulling in all of those nasty uh terpenes that come in and and different chemicals that do come in from the the water-soluble side of things have you done side by sides absolutely oh yeah um the hash is way cleaner noticeably cleaner side by side so that is definitely a pro tip i mean using a congen machine for propagation is definitely a pro tip in terms of cultivation but when it comes to cultivating for hash there is no comparison it's taken a long time to come out but there is no comparison and using uh regenerative type of um, farming methods if you're outside or using jadam knf nutrients and methodologies whether you're inside outside mixed light whatever we now know that they make the biggest juiciest heads that have incredible flavonoid and terpene profiles and look at who keeps winning folks look at who just won the ego clash right a couple of kids from maine that used jadam a small grow with ice cream cake kicked everybody's ass okay this was regen grown at its finest is that mission Hill? um i forgot their name but they're from maine they kicked everybody's ass (laughs) all i know is the boys from out of town kicked our ass and (laughs) went away with it That was kind of cool and it was regen it was all jadam grown nutrients you know it was amazing and um, so that's something that we're really getting into now too is we are now finally i don't know why we didn't do this sooner taking our waste from our um water hash extraction our concentrating practice and turning that into jlf which is Jadam Liquid Fertilizer for those that don't know what that is. And for those that don't know what Jadam is, if you cultivate or if you like hash, you should definitely do a YouTube search for Jadam Lectures 1 through 17. They're very short. Anybody can learn. You can make all the best nutrients from plants and materials at your place. And the best way to grow plants, especially for for hash, is with the plant itself. So I literally make JLF from the flour that I extracted plus fermenting the, um, the wastewater, so to speak, from the wash is the best nutrients. That's, plants have one main goal, and that's to self-propagate. So you're just using all the nutrients that are on board to do the best job of it. And so if you want to grow the best hash plants, that's the way to do it. Organic regen, period, end of story. And then do your selections from there.
3: It's uh, definitely something you- that needs to be a part of the conversation down to the water, you know. Like, but like, I didn't know that the like the restructuring of the water and then dropping it to a pH of six would have <laughs> that much of an effect.
1: It's not the pH drop. No, the pH drop has a uh, is a byproduct of the water restructuring. Okay. And the heavy ionization of the water, what it does is it creates this heavy uh, influx of double hydrogen atoms, which, in case you didn't know, for those geeks, is one of the best, most available, most absorbable uh, antioxidant that goes after free radicals that there is. And it's not a coincidence that pretty much every billionaire and movie star has a Kangen machine uh, that they drink from every day. It's, it's it's because it is sort of a fountain of youth kind of thing. And it's definitely helpful for people. I got into Congan water for my health. Then I realized that this same machine, I can literally eliminate all of my IPM and just use this for all my IPM, all my propagation, and my water source. That's awesome. I also use it to clean. You know, we clean at the facility with it, with the hypochlorous.
2: <laughs> Do you think... Um... <clears throat> dabbing or whatever vaporizing your concentrates at different temperatures gets different medicinal benefits from different strains
3: Um, and is there a reason no water in this
1: is there a reason no it's just it's in front of me okay
3: fair i just didn't know if like (laughs) maybe like that level of filtration was like filtering off a level of turf that you wanted to experience or something like that. You take your shit seriously. Say, so, you
1: know, real it's harsher, it's drier, but doing this straight hit, you do get the purest flavor. No question. You definitely lose something when you water filter it, but I mostly water filter. It's just my pieces inside. <laughs> That's the truth of it all. I got my kit here. My index kit. I actually One. took it a desktop and put it into a Pelican versus getting the portable.
0: (laughs) I think I might have to do that. Brian, you had a question about the index that uh, you had experienced last night as far as um, spectrum went. Do you remember that question?
3: Oh. You're muted, Brian. You're muted, Dr. Paul.
2: I was going to say um yeah so my my wife actually tried it for the first time and um her comment was this is the first time i've really kind of not had joint pain and you know she's she's you know a a daily user but it was like the first time i guess that's why i asked about different medicinal benefits based on temperature or based on how you're using it you know we're using quartz mostly and checking temperature making sure we're hitting it in that that range so we're not burning it, but like this is a different effect, especially as you see the ramp up in temperature on the index. And like absolutely I was saying I was saying actually just before we came you're on. Today, everything
1: at optimal volatilization, you know, is what's happening. And if you and if you take the hit slow and you incrementally heat it up, that is some of the most medicinal way to do it, unless you're specifically looking for certain effects but definitely volatizing it slowly like that and having that indirect heat is a big deal that's a really big deal because you're you're literally volatizing things and i don't know what kind of hit she took but i know for myself where I, sometimes i'll ramp this up so slowly you know that you're not even really blowing vapor out for a while but boy are you getting you can tell you're getting in a lot of terpenes and flavonoids and things of that nature so that's priming your system your neurological center it's getting it ready to accept those cannabinoids in a different way when they come in you know when you volatize that all at once a lot of times as good as we try to do you're still getting a little bit too high a temperature at first you know so you you do have some weird molecular changes there it's not perfect and i think that. When you're inhaling off of this index, especially as it's ramping up, there's no escape. You're getting everything in the sequence. That's why I, I really got interested in it. I forgot which size, size it is, but there's one of these sets of elements where you put 13 of them in there and it takes like eight minutes to get to the top temperature. And you know that's a really interesting one because you can really chart out different volatilities that are pretty evident and in saying that you could potentially just keep heating it past that point and try to get into those ranges to just use it specifically for medicinal purposes but I know for my own when my lungs are in a certain state right I will look for certain spectrums that are high in pinene predominantly and do have beta carry in it and then I will use um, his dog bone and he just came out with a new dog bone and the cool things about the dog bone are that they will not over temp no matter how much you heat it they won't get over a certain temperature so for somebody like me that really shouldn't get past a certain level of volatility um it's that's a good use and I have two different dog bones that are two different temperature ranges one I can actually use with full melt believe it or not, and, um, you know, one I use with rosin. And so there's a lot of versatility there. And to answer your question specifically, that's, that's why Kylie and I really hooked up tight at first is because I really want to turn this into a very accurate medical device. And we do want to have computer controls for it so that there are pre-programmed temperature, pro, uh, temperature ramps, and you could program it yourself. And there's a few modifications that he would need to do to make it FDA certified, but it's pretty close in terms of materials and how it works right now. So that's that's been my goal from the start. I've turned on elderly people with COPD um, and given them very low temperature dabs, and they've had some incredible breaths that they haven't had in years. And that's a big deal. <laughs> And you can take that big, satisfying breath. Finally, Man,
2: you know? wow! Yeah, that's a big deal. <clears throat> what does this wishbone look like?
1: It's a dog bone. It's called it's a dog bone. Uh, um, is it one of these? It is not. It looks like presumably a dog bone. Yeah,
0: I'm gonna go. I don't think we have that one. <laughs> I
1: know I got it. But
2: this dog doesn't have any bones.
0: This dog's got no bones,
1: yeah. ain't got no dog bones. Oh, shit. No, it's got, it's like narrower in the in the center. It's, uh, uh, it's alright. It's on his website, I'll bet you. But Kylie will hook it up. That's awesome. He's got the bigger one now that gets warmer and I think he's gonna make one that's a little bit bigger than that too to do a, a incremental But it basically ramps up and it just stays there. It won't get any hotter so that's good for people like me when my lungs are tired I can keep it at a, a level that I can take <laughs> I'm excited. I, I
2: didn't want to try the ones with all the multiple heating elements Not, i'm going to try one right now
0: harry what are what are the three most impressive cultivars that you've you're currently washing or working with this year what is stuff that you're really excited about um, don't rush take your dab we don't rush dabs around
3: here <laughs> that comment that comment that comment a fucking great comment <laughs>
4: Um,
1: my favorite cultivars are always cultivars that surprise me you know it's always disappointing when you grow something because you've heard it's a great washer or a great extractor and it's not you know that happens a lot so you know, anything that that does what it's supposed to, you know, first and foremost, but um, I've really, you know, people love it or hate it. I really love the GMO spectrum. So I've been working with a lot of GMO crosses. Um, I have some GMO land race crosses that I'm working with. I have the GMO ChemDog. We have the GMO Cookies. Um, There's a lot of different GMOs that I really want to Kind of perfect and find you know the the selections that I like and then you know then so G- GMO is um, the guiding light for well it's it it really makes really nice hats. all it of really us we love- we we we're all here we're all here right here with you man
0: like we are fans yes. girls fan girls yeah the we, we all
1: love GMO nice hash I mentioned before kosher Kush if you get the right <laughs> cut that is just ridiculous. Um, same with the strawberry banana. Yeah. Oh,
4: nice. The
1: okay, so let's try this. This is like twelve things That's in it. That's awesome, Harry. What what you setting know, those, are you putting are like the really the, the knob But I can tell you that I'm going back to some of the basics. Besides the 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 GMOs that we're playing with, there's a landrace one, like I said. There's another GMO, um, Satsuma orange cross. Which is really just a Satsuma sweet uh, version of Tangy. It's not the original Crockett cut. It's more of a sweet Satsuma flavor crossed with GMO. So there's a few of them that we're playing with there that that dump and some dump more than others and we're trying to work it, work it out. And you know, part of it is you think you know what you're doing and you don't you know that's the reality of it like you can make good hash and then you'll discover something the next wash and you're like god damn it I can't like for instance for years I was washing so much hash down the drain when it came to CBD because I didn't compute that I should be I should have a much smaller set of bags smaller microns it just I don't know what I was thinking um
3: so what, what, what what micron size gland size do you see CBD typically well, in the certainly gotta,
1: you have to have a 25 bag in there for sure you're definitely going to be dumping wow. it all but but in some wow. cases you know it, it can go down from there and so you know you got to use some of your knowledge from doing you know ethanol and, and and solventless type of extraction where you do a real step down and you got to be careful where You're going to pass it through the bags and then you're going to have to take you you have to collect that water and then these bags are brutal they take a long time there is no way
3: other than
1: you know now we have like the bruteless system where we have a pump at the bottom and it'll suck the water out so that really helps but still it takes forever Mm -hmm. to really get to that and i think you know people have vibrational ones now there's there's going to be a lot of advancement there soon but yeah, have, you, I have
0: mean, you worked with a lot of CBD resin?
1: Like well, on the the side, dude, yeah. I I have. I mean, I haven't really put it out to market too much um, for a while. There, there was I had a quite a following in the two fifteen days buying a twenty to one rosin. Um, so, you know, I I I have done it, and certainly, and I was also making shatter. Um, I really got pretty good at making shatter with my ethanol extractions so there was a bit of that for a while um for my own self i definitely was collecting all different kinds but mostly i was doing ethanolic because really from a medicinal standpoint that's what we know to date to be the most efficacious you know so that's i don't know i'm a purist i kind of head and I'm, I'm really stubborn in directions until I figure out something better.
0: That makes sense. So
1: I have no endorsements from the ethanol industry, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what no, it's is- just, it's,
3: it's, sorry, sorry, it's just, it's interesting hearing all of this um, from kind of like the other side of things where it's just like normally all of our guests are like heavy solventless dudes, which you are and strive for only the solventless, but it's nice to see and hear, you know, the other side of things where it's like, you know, the most efficacious way is actually to have solvent made and and ethanol specifically, which is kind of news to me, um, be it the extraction method for that base. And it's, uh, that, that well creek. think about
1: it what scientific study what pharmaceutical study what medicinal study was done with butane or or uh extract? Not that i know of right, right. the answer <laughs> is it's all done with ethanol i mean all bench extractions are done with ethanol and all those studies and part of the reason why man knows right now you know it's it's an easy way to fingerprint botanicals and so you know um in certain respects it can be crude and in certain respects there's a lot of high tech out there you know I kind of use a combination of both when I first started I did everything by hand and the product that I make now I have a lot of automation so I can so I could scale it and the product maintained its integrity but it took a long time to get there um it's not a quick process especially when you're trying to maintain the acidics. It's one thing our products have our uh, acidic uh, full spectrums, and so uh, we have to be very you, careful in the. Do you want to just that's take? Awesome. A, yeah. Do you want to just is.
0: take a moment, Harry, to talk a little bit about uh, the other side of your business? Because I think we've come on and we've we've t- brought you in as a hash maker, but I, I don't think everybody knows about the the wellness line or or the the oil line.
1: Well, that's you know that's definitely the side that keeps me in the, in the legal world. We have, um, cultivation, manufacturing, distribution licenses in Humboldt County, and we're going to be adding, uh, delivery. And, uh, the reason is Rosette comes out of me saving my own life and then working with tens of thousands of patients over the course of years and working with some amazing people and, the results are the, the rosette tincture line. Uh, they're not, you know, they look simple, but, you know, a lot went into them. Uh, there's a lot of uh, user data, so to speak. Uh, when I first started in 2015, we were able to sell directly to patient, and we had a lot of patients all over California. We had a couple thousand at any given moment, and like I said, we were able to go directly to patient back then so things were different and we were able to collect a lot of feedback and make adjustments along the way on our cultivars extraction techniques um you know the titration the infusion methods etc to get to where we are now and um you know i ended up putting myself <clears> into remission with a regiment that included basically uh what we now call my number three which is a three to one and um through working with a lot of different patients we figured out all these additional formulas people would come to us and say i got this patient and this is what's wrong with them and that's really what happened is we would literally custom compound all these formulas and give it to doctors and nurses throughout you know all over the country frankly but mostly in california and they ended up going to assisted living centers and places to do even broader studies, you know, than, than anybody's able to do today. Um, so really Rosette is all about a patient first company and, uh, a lot of product ends up getting given away for compassionate care. We work with people like sweet leaf and, um, this is Jane project and, um, dear cannabis. There's a number of organizations weed for warriors so we really work hard to give a lot of our product away and the other side of it is of course we're in deliveries and dispensary services and we're going to start delivering ourselves. it's kind of still you know unfortunately like this old world crap that we have to deal with because of the state of legalization and the state of medicine um in California prop 64 dominated everything people don't even fake the need for medicine in their stores anymore like they used to and we had that much like they had to at least fake it you know because it was medical cannabis law well now it's not and so it's really difficult frankly to get business owners to want to bring medicine in Uh, we've had situations where we have a cancer patient that needs a few hundred dollars worth of our product every week to get through chemo okay and the dispensary won't bring it in It's unbelievable like they won't do it so we're battling that now we kind of went backwards when we went into 64 when it comes to the medicine world and i feel like we're one of the few brands that's holding on for dear life to actually present you know medical options to patients and sustain strong um our options just so so we're clear they're part of the reason they're different is you know we use only top shelf flour that's cured in our extractions. There's no littles or larf or shake or floor sweepings or nothing. It's all top shelf. I believe that the best products should go to the patients, not the dabbers, as much as I hate to say that, folks. Um so we I, agree with that. You know, always there. That's our methodology. And so only top shelf goes into these products and gets extracted with a cryoethanol extraction. And then it's suspended into MCT oil at a very precise dosage. And it maintains that full spectrum of cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids and enzymes and metabolites, vitamins and minerals. It's got all of it. And that's what makes it special is this ethanolic extraction with the right strains that we have cultivated and maintained over the years we don't adulterate this at all we don't add any flavors we don't add any smells or tastes or anything because as you guys know the reality is all of that stuff comes with medicinal values and so anything that tastes like really good well it it might affect somebody's heart medication or their blood pressure medication or any number of medications can come into conflict with spectrums of, of, you know, these full spectrums of cannabinoids. So we really want people to have the option to be clear with what they're taking. And we do make these little tiny ones that are five mil. These guys, these little tiny guys, and you can try each one and see really based on, shoot, I wonder if I even have it. This is kind of cool, so, you know, after dealing with 10,000 patients, we have a uh, basically a, a conditions chart and you know it shows kind of good, better best by formula and condition. We have the real nitty-gritty detailed version of this. This is the distilled down version, and we have to be very careful with this. Obviously, you know this is um, could be considered medical claims and the medical world really is unhappy about the cannabis world sort of uh, taking over. However, this this symptom chart, this condition chart is really a roadmap of where you can start and what you can try and what works. And it just proves that what works best for one patient doesn't work best for all. And this is the results from a minimum of 10,000 patients sample. We had a lot of patients at one point. Um, So, you know, that's, that's Rosette, that's the mission we're on. And um, all the people that work with us are amazing. They buy our inputs because we make good inputs, but also because they know that they're supporting this level of compassion. And uh, all of our stores are the same. You know, they're, they're amazing. They go above and beyond for the patients. And it's been difficult in the Prop 64 world. Uh, we need a few thousand more stores now you know uh we need a lot of things changed i'm sure you guys heard about that at the emerald cup Um, there's a lot of laws that really need to change to make it fair and and doable but besides all that you know it's like uh we still got to keep the the patience going and uh so that's what it's all about for us you know we, we've always been here for the patients and um you know that's kind of what i'm known for yeah. that's what i did get known for but what people didn't know the whole time was i was making well except for close friends and family you know my group the whole time we were always making sick solventless hash you know yeah, but man. our big f big push has always been towards making medicine Patient-owned,
0: patient-run. I, you know, there's nothing but respect. My boys are all patients cool.
1: take the product every day. Literally,
0: that's awesome. Well,
3: yeah, that's so that's, that's so dope, do. man. You're 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 an inspiration for real. Like, you're and you're the coolest guy. Like, like I can't get over. This has been like the dopest, the dopest show. Thank you, thank you again for coming on because this has been this has been great
1: yeah yeah and uh it just yeah. proves that old people can do tons of dabs <laughs> it's true it's true oh, that's the real og shit. To celebrate i really appreciate you guys bringing me on you know kind of a absolutely getting to a new group and, absolutely
0: uh, man we'd love to have you back harry what were some love what
1: were the redwood roots
0: uh, yeah, man, I love those guys. I got nothing but support. Speaking of that, what were like some three of the most impressive dabs you had that you didn't make this year? You know, sh- shout out some, some people who are putting in work out there.
1: You broke up, man. You're oh, going to have to say that again. I'm sorry. Are you? Most sh- impressive
3: dabs of the year.
0: Most impressive Sherry. dabs of the year. Top three, three most
3: impressive dabs that you didn't make this year? Who uh, who's who's doing the good the work most best that, I made this year or I that you this didn't year? make? That you didn't make?
1: Um, well, I mean, impressive to who visually you, to a house?
3: You, your palette, oh, everything me? for you. The three best dabs that you didn't make this year. That guys that, uh, that are doing good work. Make. You didn't make.
1: Okay. Well, I can say, of you know, officially, that the three best dabs that I took that I didn't make were all made from black market material. So I definitely don't want to mention the personal names, but fair, fair. Um, Two of them, were, two of them were full melt, and one of them was um, straight up rosin first press, really nice. And I gotta say. You know and this is just my palette and i think it's because it's nostalgic for me right now and i grew the shit out of it back in the day um i'm really kind of craving sour diesel i know that that's thing or something but so i'm kind of thinking of bringing sour back that's the other thing so you know both what i tried myself and what i made for myself the best dabs were definitely sour diesel and then second would be um, out of some of the material that you got to try Uh, there's a few other microns that are really interesting and it's like splitting hairs at a certain point you know i think you'd find the 120 interesting i think you'd find the 90 interesting Um, i think you'd find the 220 melt really interesting Oh man. That's got a really interesting, very um, very strong taste to it.
3: I've heard of you and one other person having melt in that like 200 plus range, and it's J Plant speaker. And like that's it. I've only heard that's
1: it. And it's because they look, okay. Those guys are on it, man. Those are those, you know, I mean, fucking solventless mind as far as I'm concerned it's like a hash whisperer, you know, so, uh, <laughs> Kills yeah, that's off to those guys. You know, those guys grow for hash and, uh, they're living the dream for sure, man. They're part of the legend keeps this all going. Yeah. But I, I just think a lot of people don't know, man. I think a lot of people throw that hash out. I gotta be honest with you. Uh, we only learned by accident because this thing dunked in the 220, and it was just noticeable. But there was a puck underneath our plant material it was crazy so um it was unignorable when we actually scooped because we use a 65 gallon stainless and we scooped that all out there was a puck at the bottom you know wow That's when we looked at, and it was all stuck to the the work bag and i was like oh my god we didn't even think about it we just let it left it there went to lunch we came back i was like oh what a mess so therefore, forward you know we realized that we should be catching it we switched our configuration around So That's, do you
3: run I don't know if this is too like trade secret talk do you run a bag smaller than the 25
1: No well not for THC I don't even run a 25 No no for
3: for for like CBD for when you're doing like
1: Oh yeah course yeah I mean you know if you can you know that's the problem is it it'll take you the rest of your life to get it out of there we have down I have down to a 10 bag (laughs) you know that's cool 10 microns microns 25 sucks but a 10 is brutal you know so if you have the right cold room and you can leave it overnight and and you have the time and all that you could certainly do it especially if you can pump it out and create that negative pressure in there but I I hope there's a better way at some point because vibration didn't help. You know, it's just, um, it's one of those things we'll get it, but you know, I'll definitely be doing CBD hash more and more in the future. It's definitely a passion of mine. I got some great, uh, genetics from bio vortex.
0: Shout out Jesse. That's awesome. I got the G mob. I'm very
1: excited to pop. Jesse's a close friendly, uh, we're going to get fight. him on the
0: show. We're just tracking down
1: Dab Logic.
0: Okay. Julian and Sam, we're coming <laughs> after you. We'll we right. have you on the show, and Jesse will be there. That'll <laughs> be fun, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, Harry, it was so great having you. We'd love to have you back. I mean, I, I feel like we could keep going for hours, and-, and-, and just, you know, what a pleasure it is chatting with you. Do you have one Grateful Dead show that stands out above all the rest?
1: Uh I have a few, you know, I definitely have a few um I would say that uh one of the ones that hit me the hardest was um the first show back after Brent died. That was a, that was wild. It wasn't necessarily the best show, it was just sort of an epic energy um everybody you know, getting together again uh right after Brent Midland had died on the East Coast. You know, that was, that was pretty heavy duty. Um, I would say that my favorite shows really were either uh, Warfield, right? From the nineties that I went to, or um, on the East coast, it would have to be, and it's always a much bigger show. Uh, saw a felt form show, you know, in the early 90s that was amazing and um that was a jerry show that was awesome i think it was halloween that was definitely memorable um (laughs) a lot of this is very blurry and madison square garden shows were always near and dear to me they always played about nine nights you know they do three nights on a night off three nights on yeah so that was that was something else, but um, I mean, I I liked going. You know, uh, went to his birthday once in Michigan at Cobo Arena. That was pretty wild.
0: There's somebody yeah. asking, can you put that up
3: back up, Damon? The, uh, what do you bombs think about awesome. the Oregon Oregon oh State prison. Oregon
1: State prison is awesome. It's off the hook, of course. Hell yeah! That's when he first came out of his diabetic coma, and he had to prove to us that he wasn't going to die. <laughs> Hell yeah!
4: Oh yeah!
1: I, you know, I, and I've seen some amazing acoustic shows for sure. I I really like I said, being a stagehand, it's hard to really remember because those yeah. guys show up. Sure. Uh, and and like Great American Music Hall, like Bobby and Merle Saunders would show up at the Radiators or. You know uh jerry and grisman would show up at sweetwaters at at a a bobby at a like a bobby in the midnight show yeah you know just never knew what the hell was going to happen so those were some of the that's when i get jazzed i mean i love the big shows yeah meadowlands and (laughs) it was all good i'd give my arm for a for a show with jerry Right now. <laughs> well,
0: Harry, thank you so much, man. We appreciate you so much and it was so great chopping it up with you and yeah, definitely love to have you back and you know, yeah. thank you,
2: yeah, thank you, fine. thank you. Yeah, much appreciated. Yeah, man. Thanks again so much thank for, you for your time. sharing the stories and the uh happy and the New knowledge. New year, was so much fun.
3: Yeah, yeah. happy New year to you as well, sir. Yeah.
0: Damon, play us out.
3: Such brother. a great show. Right. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks, right. everybody. Thank you. Happy Sunday. Cheers. Peace.